hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to episode 35 of the Elite Big War Games podcast with myself, Ken Riley, the Yaksha Gamer. And today we have one of the War Games glitterati for you. It is uh, my friend and your friend, Henry Hyde. And uh, it's a long old conversation, as you would expect uh, with me and Henry. Um, both of us are talkers, uh, so you can absolutely guarantee that this will go on for a while. So make sure you're well supplied with drinks and food and you're wrapped up warm in this cold weather and you've got plenty of painting nearby to see you through this episode. It's only a week since I did the last one uh, with Rohan, uh, Saravanamutu, and he's uh, talking about his book on Leipzig and wargaming, that wonderful big battle. Uh, it's a busy schedule, as I've explained before, and uh, I want to get uh, all the episodes I had planned to get in in 2022 in before the end of the year. And uh, this episode is half, yes, half, and if you've seen the uh, the length of time that this uh, this interview is, it's two and a half hours. So there's more to come. So this with Henry is out today on the 11th of December, and the next episode with Henry, the the second half of this interview, will be out next Friday, and then the Friday before Christmas, maybe the Thursday. I hope to have a Brews in the Binyard Christmas special um, with the usual crew. And I know how much uh, many of you enjoy those Brews in the Binyard episodes. So looking forward to that. We've had a bit of an increase recently um, of new listeners. Um, it must be we're, we're getting um, each episode the number of uh, listens in the first week and the number of listens in the first month is going up so if you are new to the podcast i would want to welcome you to the show and i know a lot of you are going back and and going through the back catalog which is absolutely fantastic to uh, see and hear and i've had a couple of messages uh, today of people who've done that so thank you for listening to yorkshire gamer um everything here is free uh, so all i ask is the the odd comment the odd follow the odd subscribe um just to uh, make the profile of the podcast that little bit bigger to bring in new listeners like yourself and for you all grunyards who've been with me since the beginning thank you thank you very much um in yorkshire gaming news i put on my italian wars game at the recon show in pudsey uh, which is um oh it's a five minute walk from here and it was fantastic being able to get up um, very close to the start of the show and just wandering down, setting up and uh, going. And then only having a five minute drive to get home rather than an hour and a half or two hours. Uh, lovely little show, uh, traditional local show, been at the Pudsey Civic Hall for uh, quite a while now. Very friendly. It's right at the end of the show uh, season, so it's a lot. It's the last show for a lot of people, and uh, I chatted with many friends. Some I hadn't seen, would you believe? One one of the people I spoke to has had five children since I last saw him, and that's not with five different people either. So it was great to uh, be there. And um, it is uh, something I suppose I need to explain is the title of this episode. And... Um, with it going over to two, I wasn't. I've got. I've got. Had a title for the second part of it, but not for the first. 
And whilst I've been editing the two and a half hours you've just been uh, about to listen to, um, I wrote down uh, some notes as we were going through the conversation uh, talking to Henry. And um, hairdryer mud rant um, is written on the sheet of paper next to me. And I've been staring at it for two and a half, three hours. And uh, I just thought, you know what? That is the title of this episode. So sit down, have a listen, find out why. Without further ado, here's an interview. Well, hello, ladies and gentlemen, and uh, welcome to the interview section of the Yorkshire Gamer podcast. And today's guest really needs no introduction, but that's not going to stop me giving him one. We all know him as that lovely wargaming chap, but he can be ruthless. In a godlike manner, my guest has been known to create entire countries, worlds and histories, and then destroy them with a stroke of a pen. His imagination has produced many imaginations. Will we find out if Yorkshire tea is the favourite beverage on the coasts of Bathylass, a nation that sounds remarkably like me asking my wife if she's going for a wash? His podcast, Battle Chat, is approaching its 100th episode, with episode 86 being a particular favourite of mine. Previous episodes of his Views from the Veranda with Neil Shook were so long that empires rose and fell in the introduction alone. His latest book, War Games Campaigns, has deservedly become a bestseller. It's so heavy that there are rumours that the Royal Mail strike here in the UK is nothing to do with pay and conditions, but it's about posties refusing to deliver the book anymore without a surgical back brace. What my guest hasn't done for this wonderful hobby of ours is not worth mentioning. So if you remember the Steve Miller song, he's a writer, he's an author and a rules designer, a gamer, a player and a war games trendsetter. My guest has been on a bit of a journey, as the kids say these days, over recent years, but he is back, and he's quite literally half the man that he used to be. His new fitness video, Humping Weights with Henry, is set to not Joe is set to not Joe Wicks off the number one slot at Christmas. He's the scourge of Tartanos, the Marquis of Hyboria, a descendant of the kings of Byzabia. But more importantly, he's here today to talk to you. So let's speak to the latest guest on the podcast and give a great big welcome to the wonderful Henry Hyde. Hello, Henry. What an introduction, Ken. That is just fantastic. You, you're welcome, mate. You're welcome. I'm, I'm having trouble breathing here. Uh, thank you so much for having me on the show, Ken. Uh, delighted to be here. Uh, really nice to ca- uh, have this opportunity to catch up with you. I'm not sure I can live up to all those epithets, but I fear that the thing about the raw mail delivery system may be true. <laughs> well, I saw you. I saw you. I saw you laughing without actually making a noise a couple of times during that, uh, especially especially during the bathy lass. Are you going for a bath, our lass? Oh, mate, yes. Uh, well, yes, everything is capable of being punned. Absolutely, mate. Uh, exactly. Anyway, it's really it's really good to be here. Lovely to be here. Uh, we no finally worries. managed to do it because obviously you came on. Oh, uh, what episode number was it you came on, Ken? Um, I wonder. Uh, that really good one. 
Oh, I think it might have been episode 86, do you think? That, that, that was the one. That was the one. That was the but, one, uh, <laughs> at which is uh, a little while ago. Not that long ago, but a little yeah, while ago. And months, as, as you say, I've, well, I've just, yesterday, in fact, I recorded episode 95 of mine with Andy Callan. You know, never mind the oh, yes. books and yeah. all that. Yeah, Lovely Brilliant. bloke. Uh, we had a good old chat. Uh, so yeah, number one hundred. Sometime Christmas, New Yearish sort yeah, of time coming Goodness up, coming me. up. And uh, so there's no point. My first question is always, "Have you been a podcast guest before?" And that one, it's just pointless, isn't it? <laughs> um, have I been a podcast guest that people have wanted before? Uh, oh well, that, yeah. Well, there we go. I think Neil wanted me on the first one, and then thought, "Oh my God, what have I unleashed here?" <laughs> Well, we, we we have our own little fan club, don't we, Henry, after our uh, our last episode where uh, people were complaining about podcasters interviewing other podcasters. That's so, right. So we've got a fan club already. What can I say? And this, of course, is Podcasters' Revenge. What can yeah. I say? You know, if, yeah. if people don't like podcasters interviewing other podcasters, uh, well, that that's a real shame because today you're, you're definitely getting that. And, of course, the lovely Alex there over on his Storm of Steel and uh, Troy, Sonic Sledgehammer and, and others, you know, they're, they're yeah, all out exactly. there. The, the thing is that we have such a small hobby uh, in compared to I don't know football or fishing or something like that, yeah. uh, inevitably we end up getting to interview each other. But what you have to remember is that we're not just podcasters; we're also yeah. human beings. Exactly. We, we have our own lives. We have our own take on the hobby. We have our own things that we do. So I think it's fair game, frankly, to you know, particularly if you've heard a podcaster discussing something interesting. It's like, oh yeah, come on, let's get him on the show and have a bit of a chat about that. So Excellent. I'm frankly delighted to be here, Kim. Brilliant. Well, you're going to get the you're going to get the full Yorkshire Gamer treatment today. The full wow. the full four parts with the quiz and um, and everything else. Uh, and I've had a number of people uh, looking forward, particularly to some of your answers so uh, oh god we'll, we'll, we'll see how those go down uh, but the first thing that we do the first thing that we do on on the podcast is the four minute challenge yeah. and um this is where we, we we try to get people to uh this could be an issue for you henry uh, we, try to, <laughs> we try to get people to summarize their war game of history in four minutes or less now um just for regular listeners uh we had a bit of a test earlier on uh, and uh, the usual countdown music and uh, di regan telling my guests to shut it uh didn't work so as as it didn't in the last episode um so i'm gonna have to rethink that but so uh henry henry is gonna get me uh increasingly frantically waving at him as the course of the uh, of course of this goes on um but uh, are you ready henry shall i press the button yeah i've set a timer so you say go and i'll press my timer Excellent. Uh, Self-controlled, that's what I like to see. So, in, in four minutes, Henry, your wargaming history. Okay, so I started uh, playing with toy soldiers, let's call it that, probably when I was about uh, five or six years old, because uh, my dad, uh, as with many kids, gave me a toy fort. I think he made this toy fort. It had removable turrets and drawbridge going up and down and all the rest of it. 
And uh, so this was in the kind of late 60s, which also, of course, coincided with the birth of the wonderful Airfix sets, uh, H-O-O-O, as they were called back then, 172, 176. And, of course, I started with things like what was available back then. There was the American Civil War Union uh, and Confederates, and there was the uh, Romans and Ancient Britons, Ancient Britons with solid-wheeled chariots, as I seem to recall. And so these all got mixed up together as a motley crew playing on the lounge carpet, which actually I seem to recall our lounge carpet had a kind of gridded surface, actually. It was sort of a squared pattern thing. So I didn't realise I was playing with gridded surfaces long, long, long before they became popular again in recent years. My dad died in 1971. And that year, uh, a little lonely boy, to be honest, and I was, you know, mum didn't know quite what to do with me. So, oh, you know, pop me down in the local library while she went shopping and stuff. And that's nice and safe. And it was there in late 1971 where I discovered The War Game by Charles Grant. And uh, that was the book that I would have to say I kind of imprinted on like a duckling, you know. Uh, and in fact, I discovered Charles Grant before I discovered Don Featherstone. It's only after I've had uh, the war game out on almost kind of perma loan for months and months and months, poring over those black and white photographs of all those Spencer Smith miniatures and hearing about how Charles Grant worked out what his movement rates and stuff was. That's only then I kind of found the shelf in the library where there were other war games books by you know Don Featherstone and others. So that's when I kind of started playing using proper war gaming rules. And of course, it also meant I uh, immediately developed a love of the big battalions, the big game approach. Uh, then uh, through the kind of you know, late 1970s and stuff, I discovered the war games magazines where there was military modeling, wasn't there? And then there was battle for war gamers. And then, of course, uh, a bit later on, uh, miniature war games started with Duncan McFarlane to start with all those gorgeous pictures of Peter Gilder's huge games. Um, and then I actually got to visit Peter Gilder's War Games Holiday Centre. And one of the big games I'll probably talk about is the Battle of Salamanca that I uh, I was victorious in as Marmont. That was a fantastic moment. Uh, so there's all those, but that big game influence, you know, seeped into my bones. And of course, then uh, Miniature War Games became uh, uh, War Games Illustrated. And of course, at the same time, round about then in the late 80s, wasn't it? It was a practical war gamer came to view with Stuart Asquith as the editor. So it was kind of a boom time for the hobby and lots and lots of more stuff got uh, 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 we were able to get hold of, not just the airfix figures. I grew up with a lot of minifigs in my life, both 25mm and 15mm. And of course, Aspiration, I, I started then getting some hinge lifts as well, having met Peter Gilder especially. Uh, then for my sins, uh, off to university and stuff and my wargaming largely was related to the magazines, which is why probably later on, when the internet kind of started, I started my Battle Games website and that of course became the name of my magazine that I launched in 2006 which then became Miniature War Games with Battle Games and then I said I've had enough of that and then of course I, I became patron in the meantime obviously I've been visiting all the shows all particularly Salute because it was cl fairly close to me and both shows every year whenever I could of Partisan because I absolutely love the Partisan show it's the one show I think that really showcases the hobby that's it boom boom it's not easy, is it, mate? Cool, dear. And my radar's going off still. How do I stop my radar? There we go. <laughs> well, thank you very much for that. It's <laughs> it's it's not it's not easy. It's not I'm easy. I'm exhausted. Uh, 
You just need to lie down. Do we need a break for 10 minutes? <laughs> no, but what I do need is some lovely Lavazza coffee. Oh, dear. That's that's one mark off you in the quiz then. Oh, sorry, mate. Sorry, mate. Well, I didn't get much sleep last night, so it's 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 espresso all the way. Mate. Oh, but Lavazza, Lavazza Rosa, Rosa. Or... Yeah, Rosso. Yeah, Qualita Rosa. Yeah. And uh, the best one is Qualita Oro, the one in the gold packet. So if you've not oh, tried that, no, oh, beautiful chocolatey undertones, yeah. you'll love it. Anyway, no. we're digressing from wargaming here, mate. Off on, you go. On, on, on to coffee, which is a rare subject <laughs> for me, I have to say. <laughs> Uh, but when, when in Italy, I drink coffee. So Good uh, man. that, that rose, Rosa. Uh, and, and people don't come on this podcast to learn pronunciation from me. <laughs> I couldn't possibly comment, is what I have to say. No, I uh, I once got thirteen percent in my um, French O level mock exam, and six really? percent in my German. Uh, O level mock exam, at which point the schoolmaster suggested I concentrated on science. (laughs) (laughs) Which is is perfectly reasonable. Uh, So you you mentioned there about about that, the gridded carpet. Yes. Is is Henry Hyde the originator of the gridded war games table? Is this Blimey, is I don't know don't know about that. Uh, the trouble with the gridded carpet was it was also multicolored. Uh, mum had, I think back to that time, mum had really strange taste in carpet. And, um, that, but it just happened to be the grids on it. So it meant that immediately, I didn't even think about it. It was just, you know, making up rules on the spot with, you know, I used to play games with the lad up the road, you know. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it was just easy, wasn't it? You know, it couldn't necessarily find dad's tape measure, or he probably hidden them, to be honest. Yeah, dad yeah. had hidden his nice tape measure. So the grid on the carpet was just useful, you know. But of course, it also, because it was a square grid, this is one of the things I've, uh, you know, we're going to come into room 101 later, and it's one of my potential candidates is square grid. Because I, 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 it's a bit like chess. With chess, you accept it because the pieces are designed to move in particular ways. Mm. But in, uh, th- there's anyone who's played with squared grids knows that the danger is that there's an advantage if you move diagonally. You end yeah. up kind of moving further than if you're just kind of one forward, one across, that kind of thing, which takes two squares, whereas moving yeah. one diagonally is only one. So, you know, it throws up all sorts of conundrum. And it wasn't much, it was till much, much later when I discovered hex grids uh, yeah. through doing my, you know, map stuff and some of the hex encounter games from Avalon Hill, that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, hexes, you know, they've got their own limitations, but it's kind of an improvement. Mm. Um, yeah, but I doubt. I doubt you, but you, can you pronounce tessellations, uh, Ken? Uh, probably not. Probably he's shaking not. his head, folks. So probably <laughs> we won't talk about tessellations. It was became a pet thing of mine for a while. <laughs> Prompted by a maths master who was also a war gamer. And I remember having a long and incomprehensible conversation with him about tessellations and why wow. certain shapes you can tessellate and others you can't. And it was like, yeah, okay, mate. I'm sticking with hexagons. Yeah, all, all mind-blowing stuff, all mind-blowing stuff. Yeah. And, and and with that carpet, you, you'd also preempted the, the modern-day trend for teddy bear fur. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't a shag pile, mate. It was, a, it it was kind of a woolly surface. You know, yeah. I think, you know, the, so you got kind of hedge effects, you know, around the edge of some of them, but it was kind of the edge was kind of a raised woolly thing. Thinking back, it was a really weird and horrible carpet, but it wasn't shag puffers. It wasn't the teddy bear fur thing. 
I mean, let's let's face it. The ninth. Uh, the 1960s and early 1970s were not a golden age in home decor. <laughs> <laughs> Probably not. I mean, some people rave about, you know, furniture from the 1960s in particular, don't they? Yeah. All those fancy chairs and all the rest of it. And very space age, Joe 90, kind of all that yeah. sort of thing. It'll all come back in fashion at some stage. And, and some of the stuff that you see, you know, on these um, programs where they, they go down the tip and they, and they get, a cupboard and bring it back and and paint it in enamel and then sell it yeah, for five hundred yeah, yeah. quid. Who's buying this stuff anyway? Madness. I, my, I've got two words for you: repair shop. Repair right? shop. The the BBC's repair shop program. I've got to tell you, I, I other than sort of war gaming and psychology stuff, I'm addicted to the repair shop, uh, which some overseas viewers may or may not know. I doesn't matter. I, I'm so passionate about it. Uh, there's this big, tall guy, uh, Jay Blades. Uh, is yeah. it Jay Blades OBE now? I think he yeah, is. Think he is <laughs> lovely, yeah. lovely guy. He's done a lot of work, kind of uh, charity work and that kind of stuff. But he runs this beautiful barn, uh, which I've I've been to visit actually. The the, wow. the repair shop. It's it's not far down the road from us. Uh, it's an open air, wheeled and downland open air museum. Beautiful. And people who love crafting will love this program because they take stuff that some of which is like just wrecked you know like there's uh people bring it oh yeah we had this vase and we dropped it in 1972 and we've been meaning to get it fixed and there it is like this impossible jigsaw puzzle and there's this amazing woman on the program who just sticks this jar back together in a way that you would never know it had been damaged in the first place and loads of other stuff you know that's just one example but i love the care and attention to detail that they have because i recognize that in our hobby ken i think this is is the link Mm. i want to make i think one of the things i love about this hobby is Mm. you know it's so wide ranging it encompasses so many almost kind of separate hobbies that come together under the same roof and it's so often you know you go to a show you you've been there and you go Mm. to a show like partisan and you look at some of the display games put on and the craftsmanship Mm. that has gone into absolutely everything that's on that table from the sculpting of the miniatures themselves and the painting of the miniatures the creation of the terrain the scenery the writing of the rules and the designing there's so much craft and love for the subject involved you know how it's that's one of the things that yeah it'll be with me till i die you know and so the repair shop i see that with these other amazing people whether it's kind of with uh, leather work or there's an amazing woman who restores old paintings and stuff a guy who you know someone brings in a jumble of clock parts and he turns it into this amazing 18th century you know cabinet (laughs) place cabinet clock and stuff absolutely phenomenal absolutely phenomenal so uh, a anyway, bit of a digression yeah no worry. well here's the challenge for you then and henry if it's not far away is sure. get some of your old 1970s minifigs yeah take them down to the repair shop and see what they can do with them <laughs> <laughs> they'll say what's this bit of sawdust stuck between its legs <laughs> you'd definitely get me to watch that episode without a shadow of a doubt <laughs> um and your mention of uh the the, the the Charles Grant book reminded me of yeah. um, 
the uh, Uniforms of Waterloo by Philip J. Haythornwaite. Oh, which, yes. Which was the book that I took repeatedly out of the library uh, oh, from right. the first year. Uh, and I remember specifically in my final year, so like five years, I've repeatedly booked it out. Yeah. Uh, and the librarian just said to me, I'll just take it. <laughs> <laughs> there was nearly coffee sprayed over my keyboard there. Because I'd, I'd, um, I kind of went all doe-eyed and sad to them, you know, on my last day at school. Um, yeah, yeah. And I said, I really don't want to give this back. He said, oh, just, just, just take it. Nobody will notice. Yeah, yeah. No, nobody, nobody else apart from you seen it for the last five years. I <laughs> didn't know it existed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Brilliant, mate. Brilliant. So, um, do you, this first bit is, is, is about you as a, as a gamer. Um, mm. And um, we're going to talk in the final section about you coming back into gaming. Um, mm. But have you ever been, have you ever been a club guy? Have you ever been in that scene? Did you, did you used to go to clubs? Basically, uh, not, not really. Um, and there's reasons for it. When I was at school, yes, I ran the school war games club. Yeah. Um, and uh, so that, oh, oh my God, we're talking about, so this would be 1970, uh, I ran it from about 1975 to about 1979 when I left. Um, but then, you know, university does funny things. You, you're away. And I was at a university where uh, there was one other war gamer, my mate Guy Hancock, who, yeah. uh, you know, we, we were both history students. And uh, but obviously, you know, during the holidays, we get together and play some games you know get get the get the miniatures out um a lot of plastics dare i confess a lot of unpainted <laughs> plastics as well because we Ooh. didn't really give a damn Ooh, uh. um <laughs> but but uh, uh, where at university i became interested in kind of other things that's yeah, yeah. let's draw a discreet veil over that shall we other Michelle. things uh and uh one thing that's guaranteed if, if you want to attract young women uh pu- parading your your 28 mils in front of them isn't necessarily the right way to do it. Uh, you know, keep your minifigs in a drawer, chum. Uh, yeah. it, and and so I kind of, this is this is the era where my link with the hobby became, for quite an extended period, became the magazines. Also, I did a year abroad in Germany. Yeah. The third year of my degree, I was over in uh, Augsburg in Bavaria, where mm, uh, wargaming was slightly frowned upon, certainly back imagine. in those days. It's it's in relatively very recent times that wargaming has started to become accepted in Germany. And but that you know, again, we've got to be honest, we have to thank Games Workshop for that because really yeah. they were the because they were completely non-historical gaming, it mm. kind of uh, led the way for people to be to become acceptable for people to be playing war games without them being war games and i don't know if it still applies but there's certain insignia i think to this day you're still not if you're in yeah. germany you're not allowed to put swastikas on your aircraft or tanks or that kind of thing you know so yeah. it's still a slightly prickly subject so certainly when i was there which was <laughs> great timing 1981-82 ken ah yeah. yes the falklands war the falklands <clears throat> and i became uh you know an uh, uh, I didn't want to become, but I did. I became the the British ambassador to Augsburg with lots of people at the university <laughs> saying, "So, so why have you invaded the Malvinas?" 
And it's like, hang on a minute. We didn't invade anything. We didn't. They were ours. Oh, you put that right. You should give some to Argentina. But the people living there, you know, the complicated yeah, story yeah, of the Falklands. Yeah. And that again was like, oh, yeah, better not tell them that I, I go home and play with toy soldiers. <laughs> so my war gaming during my year abroad, again, Peter Dennis, eat your heart out. I created my own little paper armies like six yeah. millimeter paper armies because I was a heavy smoker at the time. And so I always had matches on me. So I used matches and little bits of paper, you know, folded up. So they were front on like Peter Dennis's current, yeah. you know, paper yeah. boys. And I just painted little regiments of 18th century soldiers oh, on brilliant. these. And I did little ships and stuff, top down model ships mm. and stuff. So, and I literally sad. I mean, looking back, how sad was this? But I had a little tiny desk in my room in my in my digs <laughs> and the, i was i had a single bed with a but it did have a, a duvet with that was kind of mostly green i seem to remember the duvet mm. cover was mostly green so i played little solo battles and that's kind of where my first it, my first imagination started came into being yeah. uh because there i was living in you know bavaria and I really picked up on the vibe of how the Bavarians hate anyone from north of the Danube. And, oh, yeah, those bloody Swiss over there, we hate them too. And the bloody Austrians over there. And it was like, wow. And all that 18th century vibe of all the tiny kingdoms and principalities was really kind of front and center in my day-to-day -day life, you know. Yeah. And so that's where the idea was born. You know, my memories, because I didn't take the war game with me because the library would have fined me very heavily. Uh, and, <laughs> I, you know, I should have just saved up my pocket money and bought a copy, but I don't know. How, I can't remember. How much was it? Let me reach across to my shelf. I, I'm going to go. I'm going to go for, oh, is it going to be an old money? or? Yeah, what money? was it in old money? I can't remember. It was probably something like ten shillings. I don't. Uh, yeah, know. I was gonna. I was gonna go fourteen shillings and seven pence. Well, there you go. It may well have been. With so, and when I'm... you say pence, you mean with the D afterwards? With the as D. Well, with the D. Yes. But there it is. Uh, and I don't know. I know that I picked up the second-hand copy as an ex astonishing bargain for six pounds ninety-five. Uh, and the funny thing is, this is an ex-library copy. It's even. I'll show Ken. There's even a library stamp in there. Can you see? Goodness it's, me. It's not, Return it's, not, it's, not, it's not the one I stole from school, is it? <laughs> <laughs> Return to Oakmere, Potter's Bar. So it managed to make its way down to... Where did I pick this up? It might be the Partisan or something yeah, like that. I don't, anyway. I, don't think, I don't think I've ever been that far south. Oh, um, no, no, you wouldn't have. You wouldn't, have. But that, yeah, you wouldn't that, take that, the heat, that, mate. You yeah. Oh, the prickly heat had come straight out. Yeah. <laughs> the uh, That game on the table sounds like a precursor to the Perry's Travel Battle. Well, Yes. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that's really interesting, and I mean, you've spoken to Andy Callan, haven't you? And I've, I've spoke to him yesterday. And one of the things we were talking about was what goes around comes around. And yeah. actually, so many of the ideas that are being touted nowadays is, oh, this is innovative, this is cool, this is new, this is modern. It's like, Hang on a minute, I've got a book by Don Featherstone so that he wrote in 1967 <laughs> up there where something very surprisingly similar was there. And yes, this the, the idea of the travel battle or the yeah. paperboys' armies, you know, it, so much of uh, you know what we buy into is to do with marketing, isn't it, Ken? Mm, yeah. I think this is yeah. the thing that, you know, I've, I've been around the hobby quite a long time now. Excuse me. And I appreciate, you know, it's when you're running a war games business, it's hard. How do you 
grab people's attention? How do you take something and make it look new and shiny? Yeah. And often it's just kind of repackaging. You know, you get get those disparate elements, put them together in a box and say, ha ha, travel battle. And it's like people are going, wow, that's amazing. And you're sitting there as an old timer thinking, yeah, it's nicely packaged. That's for sure. <laughs> Clever. Wish I'd thought of that. Wish I'd thought of that. Yeah. But yes, the 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 whole idea of the travel battle and and very simple rules. If I don't, I think we might have had a monopoly set in mm. the flat where I was in Germany. So there were a couple of dice, but also I remember making myself a, a, a spinner thing. You know, a Ooh, six sided spinner talking. thing. Now we're talking. Bit of card, cocktail stick through the middle, doing the spin thing. Uh, God, people are listening to this thing. Is he from? Is he from the Stone Age? Well, I'm I'm going to bring you up to date with that, Henry, because you can now get those spinners on an app on your phone. Wow! Yeah, yeah, and and, and we we use one quite regularly um, for like a, an artillery. Um, hit, uh, oh right, move. yeah, the direction yeah, indicator, direction thing. indicator. Yeah, um, there are dice that you can buy that do it, but it's nowhere near as cool as oh, having a little yeah, spinny yeah. thing on your. So there you go. Yeah, yeah. Well, for that, I used behind, to. Mate. I used to just. I'm picking up a biro, ladies and gentlemen. I used to just put what, a biro on the table because back then, flat tabletop, right? Remember yep. this. It's flat tabletop, contour hills, no danger of even a, a terrain mat underneath to impede the the beautiful spin that you could get on a biro <laughs> back those days to indicate wind direction or fall of shell or that yep. kind of stuff. Man. Have things yeah. really progressed, Ken? I'm sitting here asking myself. <laughs> do, you, do you know? Do you know what I? Do you know what I saw not that long ago yeah. um, that took me back to my youth? That that, that is a, a new thing, and you're going to laugh at this. Books under a gaming mat for hills. Oh my god! That is wow. That's just so out there. Wow. Oh, yeah. Never who, did that. Honest. Who, who could who could think of that as a <laughs> as an idea? <laughs> oh, oh, God. And the thing is, if you want mountains, just use my books. Simple as that, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. In fact, on Twitter, uh, dear Balu, as he's known. Oh on yes, Twitter, yeah. Uh, he, he he was actually posting a picture of some beautiful uh, um, light dragoons in tarlatan helmets, wasn't he? That he oh, painted yeah, the other yeah. day. And I just noticed in the background, I recognised the spine of th th those two books there with my name at the bottom. So, uh, yeah, and we, he made that quip. And someone said, oh, yeah, you can use them as hills. And he said, no, mountains. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, it, you, you've digressed nicely there because it always amazes me how... Um, observant, uh, let's use the word observant rather than nosy. Some yeah. people are when you post a photograph on Twitter or Facebook or wherever it is. Yeah. And, you know, I posted, I'm building the Bismarck at the moment to go with yeah. uh, against my hood. Um, yeah. And I posted a picture of it and saying, this is where I am, blah, 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 blah. And then somebody comes back, oh, I love those uh, model uh, spruce snippers that you've got. Where did you get them from? And I go, what, what are you fucking talking about? <laughs> I've just I've got a picture of oh, a no. of a forty fifty centimeter long model that's taken me three weeks to get to this position, yeah. and you're asking about the model sprue cutter. Yeah, yeah. mate, uh, try running a magazine. Uh, 
one of those it's one of those things or and you probably already had this doing a podcast where you do a, a podcast and you, oh i'm really pleased with that it was a good conversation and then some will pipe us oh why didn't you talk about this why didn't you talk about that it's like well you know we can't can't cover everything you know no, and no. and one of the things that i um was really interesting my the process when i was uh uh in the campaigns book that uh, is out now and i uh put it out to beta readers i put together a team of beta readers which is a pretty scary process and <laughs> you know it's like oh my god what am i going to do if they all say it's shit henry you know it's like oh god <laughs> But fortunately, you know, 99.9% of the feedback was really positive and, you know, some really useful suggestions and what have you. But there was one, there was one person who did say, oh, why haven't you put more in there about this particular period of history? And it's like, well, you know, anyone could just pick their own favourite period of history and say, why didn't you do more about the War of Jenkins' ear, Henry? You know, whatever yeah, yeah. it happens to be. Because that's not what the book was about. I was just using some examples, you know, but it, the things people latch onto. And as you say, the snippers, that doesn't surprise me in the slightest. Because I've had that when I put, because I've been painting some Dungeons and Dragons miniatures in yeah. recent months, haven't I? And yeah, people are, oh, so what's that paint in the background there? It's like, yeah, does it matter? Look at the figures. <laughs> The figures. These things took me three months to paint. Look at the figures. <laughs> but there you go. You'll, you'll be glad to know that. Um, and this is this is a, an exclusive. This is an exclusive. Nobody's aware of this yet. Um, there is going to be a Yorkshire Gamer uh, awards ceremony this year, and wow. slightly different to the usual one where it's the best war games rules and the, and the best um, manufacturer and the best customer service and all that sort of rubbish that you, well, not rubbish, but you see it everywhere. Yeah. So I'm going to leak one of the categories. Yeah, uh, on. One of the, uh, one of the categories is the best war gaming's tro the best war gaming troll on a Yorkshire based <laughs> podcast or blog. Oh dear, dear, dear. So look out for that. It's uh, the Yorkshire Gamer Awards, also known as the Puddings. Fantastic, fantastic. So, so you were sending all the "I think you'll find" and that kind of thing. Anyway, that's I've been in so much trouble recently. I, I need to not get in trouble, but I could, you know, mate. It's your reputation. You are the shock jock of war gaming. <laughs> <laughs> the Howard Stern of Wargaming. The Howard Stern of Wargaming. Absolutely. Oh, I, I'm not sure boy. what I am. I think I'm Methuselah or something, but but you're definitely yeah, go for it, mate. I will go do. For it. I will do. Puddings coming up on the next episode. Looking forward to it. <laughs> do you have a setup at home, Henry? Do you have a games room at home? Oh uh, well I'm up I'm I'm in it. Uh, I'm in the loft fuffer, as it was christened. Um yeah. <clears throat> many years ago now oh goodness me it would have been 1998 nine something like that um when i was still uh working and uh running a graphic design agency and i started the battle games website 18th of june waterloo day 1998 battlegames.co.uk was launched and uh we Anne and i decided to have a loft conversion done for all sorts of reasons partly so i could come and work from home and um there we are. I suddenly found myself with this, you know, up in the eaves here with all this space and, a, and an eight foot by six foot war games table that could be converted. 
it's got flaps at the end so it can technically go up to 12 feet by six feet but oh, the trouble lovely. is it's almost impossible to get round it because the shape the attic's this kind of t shape you know but anyway so i was uh, I was described this process on on the website site back then. I mean, nowadays you would call it a blog because that's what I was one of the first people blogging about the hobby. You know? uh, and I said, well, you know, come on, let's have a bit of a competition. Send me in some suggestions to name this space. And this guy came up with the name Loftwaffe. Oh, that was brilliant. I, I was just, I fell in love with it immediately, <laughs> you know. It's absolutely the lot of it. So, in fact, it's almost like I, I as a wargamer, rent space out to myself as a designer and writer, uh, conceding part of the loft buffer for non-wargaming use. Um, so, but the thing is, as is so often the case, I'm sure you can appreciate this: is the table that's over there is more often than not just covered with crap. It's just yeah. covered with the detritus of of wargaming and hobby life. And also because I'm a butterfly, I have other hobbies as well. So at the moment, there's a whole load of watercolour paints everywhere because I've been doing yeah. a bit of painting lately. And then the other half of the table yes, is all set up with uh, my, you know, racks of paints of Vallejos and uh, contrast paints. And I've got my little Ikea boxes full of foundry paints. And I've got my citadels in other boxes. I think this, yeah, I, I kind of, there's a guy called John Priest, in case mm. you don't know him. John Priest, lovely fella. I haven't seen him in years, sadly, but he was one of the original old school wargamers when the old school wargaming group was launched on Yahoo. And he's a fella who loves painting with enamels and oil paints. Oh, and old school. He's still got this astonishing collection of original humbrol enamel paints that he's religiously made sure that they're airtight and all the rest of it. So he's got all the old Polish crimsons and dragoon greens and that kind of stuff that some of us are old enough to remember. But he's he paints beautifully, but he's actually got, by modern standards for most of us, relatively few paints. And he does this astonishing thing. He treats painting miniatures like art so he mixes colors together a lot oh, to achieve lovely. the exact color he wants yeah. and it made me realize that yeah this is really weird because if i'm using watercolors or acrylic paints to do a painting i mix paints on the palette why is it when it comes to painting miniatures i've got this preposterously huge <laughs> range of paint so i don't have to mix anything i just reach over and pick out the precise shade of shit brown that i want you know and <laughs> and and the thing is of course that i'm always always conscious of is this whole thing you know there you are talking about wargaming trolls and stuff and and the whole thing about oh i think you'll find that between march and april in 1807 uh british scarlet the the, the supplies of madder dye were in short <laughs> supply so it actually became slightly more pink than that you know so yeah. Seriously, mate. Seriously, mate. The fact is, however, a paint manufacturer will probably have a paint that matches that precise moment, colour-wise. And, of course, it's ridiculous. Because there's going to be other blokes in the same regiment who've got brand new uniforms, other blokes who've got uniforms that are falling to pieces, that are faded, you know, other blokes who have, you know, patched them together with this, that and the other. Particularly as you get to, who cares what shade of khaki it is? You know they've been rolling up, rolling around in the mud for God's sake. How can you tell? 
My my mum my mum is an artist, so I I grew wow. up mixing paint, uh, and, yeah. and I do do it quite often. But the one thing and and the the, the sort of tiny little pushback that I'll give for having loads and loads of colours yeah. is this one is and it, and it's really come to fore with the naval stuff that I've been doing recently, yeah. because I've bought sets with the actual colours in. Oh, Dunkel right. Grell 51, Hellgrell 51 for the naval stuff. Uh, so that when he comes on the internet yeah. and goes, well, I think you'll actually find that that, 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 that should be this colour. You could, Before they've even got, I think you shall find <laughs> out, yeah. you've posted a picture of the colour with it written on that it's actually Fantastic. the colour. Yeah. And, and it's... Conversation just stops dead. Yeah. So that that's 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 the reason why I have a lot of paints. But... It does. It does. <laughs> I know what you mean. I know what you mean. But it's 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 almost like a sense of guilt because you know I was I was the similar generation to John. He's a bit older than me, but yeah. yes, he he's re- maintained this feeling that first of all they're just toys. Uh, secondly, I'm doing it for me not for anyone else. So what do I give a damn what anyone else thinks? And thirdly, he enjoys the process of mixing the colours and, and compare. Oh, there's a piece of artwork by... And this is one of the other things, of course, where this is such a danger. So many of us have grown up with things like the Osprey books, you know, mm. where there's all these wonderful colour plates by, you know, most recently, almost all by Peter Dennis, but you know, over the years, Phil Philip Haythornthwaite and others, yeah. you know, over the years, and these beautiful colour plates in these Osprey books. As a man who's worked in the print trade and has had my own magazine published, I know that there's many a slip between cup and lip. You know, when it comes to the actual reproduction of colour in a book so what might look on screen wow bang yeah you've got that absolutely precisely right by the time it's gone through a printing machine and you take into account the different paper surfaces and this that and the other it's not necessarily going to actually be a hundred percent accurate anymore so those of it you know that the, the, this nerd tendency that we all have towards perfectionism that could cause so much anxiety. You know, this is the other thing. We really ought to kind of drop it, guys, and just relax. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'm sure we're going to talk about this when we talk about big games and stuff. So much of it is to do with the spectacle of the thing. You're looking at the game in an entirety. But we do have this tendency, is it because of the magazines and close-up photography, Ken, where we do Mm. have this tendency to... Oh right, I'm going to get down and zoom right in on that particular Panzer Grenadier yeah. over there, or that particular paratrooper. Uh, and I was also reminded because I've been—I I interviewed Mark Urban just recently, author, you know, BBC diplomatic correspondent and war gamer. I know Mark quite well. He—I uh, used to do a lot, bit of painting for him back in the day. There you go, lovely bloke. And, nice of course, guy. he's just written this uh, brilliant book, Red Devils, about the birth of the paratroop mm. regiment. And uh, I was talking about, I think I put something on Twitter, about how it turns out the Red Devils got their name, not because of the maroon colour of their cap, of their mm. beret. It was actually because of the early uh, fighting in Tunisia in 1943. They were you know, coming up against the German Fallschirmjäger in these mm. hills in Tunisia. And they got covered in red mud. Wow. And so the, 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 the Germans saw these howling banshee guys charging up their trenches. 
basically, and they, oh my God, Roter Teufel, Red Devils, right? Yeah. That's how they got their name. Nothing to do with, with the Maroon Beret. And uh, that, in, in just one instance there, says, so there we are technically. Were they wearing Denison smocks? What kind of camouflage were they wearing? You couldn't tell because they were smothered in red Tunisian <laughs> mud. Yeah. How many war gamers are going to put on a game set in Tunisia and go to the trouble of painting that Denison smock or whatever and then covering it with basically a brick red goop, which is technically, if you want to get accurate, Mr. Nerdy, I think you'll find, that's what those figures should look like. They should look like they're just covered in mud and they've been lying in these little slit trenches in their own bloody excrement and stuff. That's how they should look technically. But who wants that on their tabletop? Answer, if you're doing a diorama for a specific event, you know, you might model that. But in reality, you know, a wargamer says, well, I'm going to be using them for more games than just this one. So I'm not going to repaint them to do 1944 in Normandy kind of thing. I like that. That was an, an epic rant, an epic <laughs> rant from Henry Hyde. That was, that was fantastic. <laughs> oh, we're going to get some complaints about that. I love it. Absolutely oh, love it. Dear, dear. Well, I, I've had a similar thing with my Italian War stuff because mine's based around the earlier parts of the war. Yeah. Um, and, and a lot of people... Uh, Oh well, you'll need you need this and you need that for the later stages of the war. It's like, no, yeah. I don't. I've got two thousand twenty-eight mil figures. I'm not yeah. changing them for yes. another two thousand figures for the later period of the war. Thank you very yeah. much. Very yeah. kind of you for asking. Yeah. Anyway, we must move on. We must move on. We must. Um, yourself then. What's your favourites in terms of periods? I don't think it's going to be any surprise that probably at the top of the list, I'm going to say 18th century. Yeah, no surprise. And 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 I'm more specifically mid-18th century. Uh, I'm, I played Malberians and I've enjoyed Malberians, uh, but that kind of late, Louis XIV, late 14th, uh, late 17th, rather, early 18th century, is one of those periods I feel like, yeah, one day I'll get around to it. I've actually got a whole load I bought as a job lot a few years ago now, a whole load of um they're actually heroics and ross one three hundredth malberians they're really lovely little figures actually i can't I, heroics and ross that's a brand that i uh, bought a load of many 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 years ago we're probably mm. talking late 70s early 80s um and then I kind of fell out of love with them and and for a while fell out of love with that kind of micro gaming. Mm. But I've got that as a way of picking up two complete armies for a song. And actually, the, the I was lucky because the person who they had belonged to had done a really nice job on the painting yeah. and basing and stuff. They look really lovely. Um, but yeah, the Malberian era... Not really my thing. To a certain extent, I, that's a bit mad because obviously you probably know I love sieges. I'm fascinated mm. by sieges and siege war gaming. And obviously, if you want sieges, that's a really good period to have a lot of sieges. Yeah. But I think there's no other excuse other than Charles Grant and the war game. It's that mid-18th century look, the Frederick the Great War of the Austrian Succession, Seven Years' War, that mm. kind of period, which... I imprinted on and has stayed with me 
ever since and it's a and it's a period that i've gained in well 30 mil spencer smith's and holger erickson's i've gained it in 15 mil i've gained it in six mil i've gained it in one three hundredth there's a what are you thinking there henry why didn't you just stick to one or the other and i would consider now that mark backhouse has opened my eyes oh two mil that's an interesting point. The big st- semi-strategic games, particularly around sieges, that's mm. got a lot of attraction, hasn't it? Um, yeah, there's, there's, some, and, there's some potential there, isn't there, with that scale? Oh, yeah, I think we'll probably come yeah, back to yeah. this. But so the mid-18th century, because that's where my, um, my, my, my imagination was sparked uh, about creating, well, my first article I wrote for Miniature War Games back in 1986 or whatever was called, was actually called Fictitious Wars. I, no one called them imaginations back then. Yeah. Uh, we talked of them as being fictitious wars, fictitious armies. And um, that's I fell in love with the concept of being able to create my own history, to create my own cast of characters. Uh, I, it took me a while to realise, yeah, what was inside me i i'm i'm i was an aspirational writer mm. and so the idea of creating characters and story and places i fell in love this is you know this is the other thing. i fell in love with creating maps creating worlds uh it started off like charles grant there were just a couple of neighboring countries but then it kind of got carried away <laughs> particularly once in later years more recently as i started saying to other people say oh can i can i come and play with your you know in your yeah. world henry oh, all right i'll tag on another country here and there and, and suddenly arise oh okay that's already an entire continent and then this guy said hello andy you know who you are said oh yeah i'd quite like to be this other country that's kind of across from across the ocean a bit america like oh right so that means there's going to have to be a big ocean and another continent on the other side okay right and then be, oh uh, simon tonkins bless his heart goat major hello simon <clears throat> oh yeah henry i'd love what i'd love to do would, would it be okay i'd like to kind of actually take the role of someone commanding some of your prunkland armies mm. and uh but can, something with a kind of colonial twist you know and so we came up with this idea of this you know the the prunkland's east india company kind of thing which then of course again implies oh right that means that there's something happening over there as well so it led to this monstrous project i undertook of dahlia chindrastan where basically i kind of i i misted the scale on the map and suddenly realized what i had actually created was an entire continent of many thousands of miles square but the 18th century is great for that because the reality is that the seven years war it has been described by various historians as the first world World war War. and it's true that it wow it kicked off everywhere you know when you think that out in india and stuff clive of india and all those kind of things and what's happening in in america the americas and south america Mm. and elsewhere europe obviously the cockpit of europe and 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 the most extraordinary period of history and i think it was that kind of richness that um I mean, Frederick, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, it was dominated by Frederick the Great. Well, Frederick the Great had a key pivotal role, obviously, in Central Europe because Mm. of that particular situation with Prussia, 
uh, outnumbered by and surrounded by potential enemies. But, you know, that's just a very kind of myopic Eurocentric view of things. When you step outside, you look at what was happening with the British Empire and the, the French colonial ambitions and all that kind of stuff. It's like, wow, Frederick the Great was a key figure, but not in the same way that Napoleon was, you know. And probably the Napoleonic Wars are my second. I, and, and the reason for that, a combination, funnily enough, of Charles Grant and Peter Gilder. Because uh, can I pluck a? Here we are. I'm going to pluck another book off my shelf here. Off a magic shelf. Charles oh, Grant, Napoleonic Wargaming, where the cover and inside are festooned with fabulous photos of Peter Gilder's oh, setup. Look at, at the original Holiday Center, and of course, it was the Waterloo game that he focused mm. on, and. By a strange quote, this is a little footnote, by the way, ladies yeah. and gentlemen, one of the things that was so confusing and uh, irritating about this book, lovely though it is, is that the photographs bear no relation whatsoever to Charles Grant's own rules. They were Peter Gilders in the Grand Manor rules, right, that were being used. And so I found I spent ages poring over these beautiful photographs. But what Charles Grant doesn't mention anything about mounting your troops in sixes on bases or mounting your cavalry like that and this and that. And so I don't understand. There's no correlation between the photographs and the rules in the book. And he just basically, it, it's an old fashioned 1970, whatever it is, 76, was it? A 74 example of eye candy. It's yeah. like Peter had obviously said, Oh, do you want to take some pictures of my setup to. You? <laughs> Make your book look pretty and a, a gorgeous cover. It is. Nothing to do with the rules inside. How <laughs> annoying is that? But anyway, I died. But Napoleonic Gaming, because of Peter Gilder's setup largely, mm. and certainly that, well, you know, that riot of uniforms. You know, the Seven Years' War, actually, uniforms-wise, is, is extraordinary. You know, it's incredibly mm. colourful and varied, and you get the birth uh, yeah, birth pangs of all those exotic units like hussars and Croats and yeah. so on and so forth. Then you get to the Napoleonic period and it's like dialed up to 11, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Just uh, as a visual spectacle, you don't have to be a young boy who, uh, witnessing too many Napoleonic games at war game shows to think, oh yeah, I want to be doing that. Yeah. And back then, Gosh, let's say mid nineteen seventy. So I was, uh, I was at school, school wargaming club, and there was a lad there whose name, sadly, I forget, who had started collecting. Now, who remembers these? Hinchliffe System Twelve, Ooh. right? Ooh. Uh, Ken, you're looking like even you haven't heard of this. They Hinchliffe briefly, and you go back to the old pages of military modelling and Battle for War Gamers, and mm. you see the adverts there. They came up with this all-encompassing war game system called System 12, wow. where it's 12 millimetre, which, of course, now... Warlord later, Games. Uh, Warlord, Warlord games. and Callistra <laughs> yeah. uh, repopularising. Wow. Uh, but you could buy not just the, the miniatures, but they had terrain pieces like road sections and bridges and river sections and all kinds of stuff. I'll have to see if I can. I've got millions of old magazines. I have to see if I can find something for it. But if you Google, I'm sure if you Google yeah. Hinchliffe System 12, wow. you'll find stuff. And this guy had 
don't know, a few hundred figures aside of British and French. And they looked great. And so, uh, but back then, <laughs> I think back to the rules that we played back then, Ken, it's like, oh my God, how did that ever persist in being a war? His favourite rule set was the Newbury rules, right? Ooh, one yes. inch equals 10 yards, uh, one man equals 20, one figure equals 20 or whatever. All sorts of horrific calculations for morale and firing and yeah. all that sort of stuff. But I was at that age, I kind of mentioned earlier, where I, all that data didn't bother me. No, it didn't day. bother me either. As a teenager, it's like, yeah. wow. It was almost like I'm being set a test. Can I pass this test and learn all this stuff by heart? You know, all those casualty tables. Oh, yeah, well, there's plus one, plus two, but that's all minus one there. And the heavy co uh, hard covers as a minus one. And then all oh, the range is like a plus three. Oh, yeah, but they've uh, uh, Oh, yeah, but they fired last and moved last moves. So that's a minus one. And oh, yeah, so you, you, you got 23 figures at uh, plus four. That's uh, 78, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Now it's like, how many sixes do I need to roll? <laughs> right? Have but we, that have, was the... Have we just got lazy? Have we just got lazy? Well, or is, maybe. Or has, 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 has technology changed? I mean, I think I said on your podcast, I, I, I do a lot of engineering calculations at my work. Yeah, yeah. So I still juggle figures on a daily basis. So yeah. I, I'm not as scared of the old rules as many people are i do yeah, get yeah. it i do understand why people are afraid of it but yeah do you think that we don't do those mental calculations like we, we used to and that's oh maybe that little bit of our brain that switched off yeah I, I, and here's a really good example um your best mate what's his what's his phone number yeah it's like oh i don't need to remember his phone number because it's in my phone yeah. i just a bob Oh, yeah, call Bob. In fact, I don't even know how to press it. Siri, call Bob. Bob, yeah. Right? Uh, if, there's any, if there's anyone out there playing this in the living room and Siri has actually just called Bob, <laughs> Hen <laughs> Hen Henry now apologises profusely. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. I'm reaching up to my shelves over here. Henry, uh, Henry, Henry is at the magic bookshelf. You can probably, uh, you'll probably oh, know I'm why just I'm doing He's just got right, quarry. Okay. He's just got quarry. I can see a quarry in his hand. Here we go. The first one. You know, we moaned about the Newbury rules. Then along came Dear Bruce Quarry in I 19... Oh, my love God. It. Love it. 1974. Ah. This slim little book. God bless Airfix. Bless them. God bless Airfix because they produced a whole series of slim little volumes to aid war gamers and modelers loads of them and some of them were actually kind of little turning points in the hobby and this mm. was certainly one of them bruce quarry's napoleonic war gaming the airfix guide magazine guide for napoleonic war gaming wow this was a head turner back then because this you want data You've got data. And then, of course, he took it to the next level with his Napoleon's oh. campaigns in miniatures, which that I've got. It, that book it's, is brilliant. This went to like four or five editions. I've got yeah. them all here. Because yeah. Just in case I miss something and I'm a completist. What a nerd. This was first published 1977, second edition 1982. And absolutely stuffed full of data 
for yeah. the passionate Napoleonic wargamer. So long as your 33 times table were up to scratch, eh, Kim? Three. Well, you see, the easy thing with that, if you top tip here for everyone, obviously quarry rules are coming back. Three is 100 <laughs> is the easiest way to remember it. And just take one off. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but then you do get because it's all done. All the casualties are calculated in men, yes. so you get things like, "All oh, right, so your your guard, your guard artillery there have just unleashed canister at that Russian column, mm. and they've caused a hundred and seventy three casualties. Yeah. So you better be on the ball to know that. Oh, that's five figures plus yeah, whatever remainder that is, right? Yeah. How did I remember that 165 is five? Oh my god, it's, it's more ingrained in my blood see, than I realized. You see, you've not lost it, you've not lost it. But there's also things like where okay, if you turn a battery, it it loot because he'd worked out all the rates of fire, yeah. And of course, you know, the the the, the joke is that here he is reckoning he was being so precise, imagining that British infantry were always able to fire three rounds a minute, you yeah. know, taking no account of weather conditions or the fact that they've mostly had dysentery that morning or whatever it is, you know, or the officer said, well, stop firing. We can't see the target because of all the smoke. Yeah. But there we are religiously three rounds a minute and your, 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 your nine pounder British, British artillery guns can fire three rounds of canister per turn or whatever. So if you're turning your gun, for four fifths of a turn, does that mean you can still loose off one oh. round of canister? And oh, the... you're going back to the discussions of my youth over a war game. Oh, mate, Pro we all had protractors back then. <laughs> of course, we did. You mounted your artillery on equilateral triangle bases just to make sure that there were no arguments. Did you ever meet Bruce Quarry? I never did. I never mm. did. Uh, I, I gather he was a slightly controversial figure i'm being very polite here <laughs> his it turned out that he he had a slight love affair with the ss or something of the kind yeah um he wrote uh, books about yeah I, I but i'm you know that's allegedly i think is what we have to say allegedly. but he's he obviously when it comes to napoleonics and world war ii those those real things but he loved i'm here's a here's a spread for you ken oh i love that page i used to oh know my that god back to front what I... i've held up there ladies and gentlemen is a page with all the different army austria britain confederation of the rhine and italy france poland portugal and it goes on further pages prussia spain and naples russia scandinavia with all the what he called national characteristics reduced to numbers and by reduced to numbers we mean every different unit had a different fire factor melee impact factor melee oh. confused factor melee confused morale factor oh. control factor and then different movement rates for line column and on road and here's uh, let me just give you one example from france okay so your Typical line fusilier. Okay, your line fusilier can march 120 millimeters in line, 140 in column, 160 on the road. But a line grenadier can march 140 millimeters or 160 millimeters or 180 millimeters. Longer so, legs, Henry. Longer legs. 
That's be, what it had, would be. You had to be taller to be in the Grenadiers, so longer That's legs, right. no further. That's right. But what happened, and I saw it happen in games, because some players less experienced and more, you know, shall we say, button country, would take this absolutely literally. And so as they're marching forward a battalion in line, it would start to break up because they would say, oh, yeah, but my grenadiers are allowed to march 20 millimetres further than the fusiliers. And you're like, no, 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 mate, that, that that's not how they would have done it, right? <laughs> they would have marched to the slowest pace. Yeah, but it says I can go 20 millimetres extra. And it's like, is it a race to get to the enemy first? Amongst the companies of your own battalion, you're, 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 mate, you're going to end up with this yawning gap and morale deficits and exposed flanks. Yeah, yeah, but, but, but I'm allowed an extra 20 millimeters. Yeah, whatever. And then, of course, perish the poor man who was in command of Prussian landfare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because where is it? Poor Prussian man. Where's Prussia? Okay, you're Prussian. Russian landwehr could move 60 millimetres in line, 80 millimetres in column, and only 100 millimetres on the road. Yeah, so, very, ge very generous that was as well. Wow. <laughs> These boys are going to lag behind. But, the, ladies and gentlemen, I kind of, it's almost like I, I developed a passion for Napoleonic wargaming almost in spite of that, because I think for Napoleonic gaming in particular, it became the spectacle of the thing as much as the game itself and uh funny enough so was, uh, it might have been and yes yeah, so andy cannon again i was chatting to about this one of those things that i love about the hobby and one of the things i love about big games mm. is that moment where do you know what all i want to do is stand there and look at it or even squat down next to the table so that the table's at my eye line and yeah. look along those ranks of troops heading off into the distance. Because what you're reproducing is those amazing battle paintings that you've seen yeah. in the museums and that kind of stuff. Mm. It's this tab, the idea of the war game as tableau, as a moving tableau. And that's a magnificent thing. Mm. And, you know, I, I grew out of Bruce Quarry's. Uh, uh, rule sets because you know one to 33 you end up with units of like 16 20 maybe 24 mm. figures but under his rules arrayed in a single rank yes yeah. now and this is one of those other big debates that has always come up in wargaming isn't it ken about you know we we can be so nerdy about getting things accurate in terms of you know movement distances and firing rates and all those kind of things but so often the depth of our units is wildly out of proportion mm. with the frontage of the unit. This is why a single rank of figures is kind of technically more accurate in terms of the space occupied by that unit in reality. But a single rank of miniatures just doesn't float my boat. There's yeah, no other way to right. put it. No. And this is where, you know, talking about the big games why do i love big games with lots of miniatures with you know large units it's got something to do with that that you know a, a, a unit arrayed in at least two ranks of miniatures to my eye and it's obviously a very personal thing yeah. just looks a lot better than a unit arrayed as a single rank of figures unless that unit is skirmishing or something yeah you know? it's, a, it's a discussion that's come up with my italian war stuff because the front rank of my pike blocks I like to have with leveled pike. Mm. Um, and I use 
steel pikes with sharpened ends. So yeah. I've extended the base to it's 110 mil, so that the fronts of the um, spear uh, spears, the pikes, are yeah. protected by the base, and uh. that's mostly to protect the players. <laughs> yes. It's nothing to do with some fancy, um, you know, ground scale or anything along those lines. Yeah. It's because if they do, and one day I'd put the, I had a game on at uh, Rico in Pudsey at the weekend, and I got at least two finger pricks that led to blood. So yeah. they're very, very sharp. So um, a couple of people have got, oh, well, how, how do you deal with the depth of the of the unit in, in terms yeah. of your ground scale? Um, and what happens if somebody, you know, brings that up in a game? Well, I said yeah. one, I don't because I really don't care because it looks a lot better. And two, if somebody yeah. brings it up at a game, they're out of the door because <laughs> <laughs> because those are the questions. Questions like, what would you like from the bar? And uh, are we having fish and chips for lunch? Are acceptable questions at the war games table? <laughs> um, why are your figure bases so deep? Um, you know when your brain switches off, yeah, um, yeah. And, and so anyway, um, well, we, we're doing well, mate. We, we're on an hour and eight minutes, and um, we've not even finished. Is that the, all? Well, that's, we've not even finished the first section yet. So, all right, uh, right. we're doing okay. well. We're doing well. So, the final, the final section of part one, the final section of part one, is the Venn diagram of wargaming. Yeah. Uh, so, he's, he's, fact, listeners, he's moved me onto the. I haven't even finished that section yet. No, he hasn't. No. You said you've got to be away for seven. We've got no chance at this rate. Oh, God, yes. What were you going to say? Oh, I was what just going to say that you, my favourite period, yeah. uh, Seven Years' War, uh, mid-18th century, uh, Napoleonics, yeah. um, probably post-1800. Peninsula War specifically. Yeah. Love yeah. the Peninsula War. And the last, early World War Two and Desert War. Uh, I, I, I like... World War Two before the super weapons start yes, arriving. Yes. Oh, I yes. love the quirky vehicles. You know, I I give me you know uh, a, a little Czech tank. You know, whatever something like that. Um, give me a, a quirky Matilda lumbering around. You know, this unstoppable tank armed with a pea shooter. That yeah. kind of thing. Uh, love it. Kind of so nineteen thirty nine through to about nineteen forty two ish. Nineteen forty three, kind of the tiger arrives, doesn't it? And you yeah. start getting like, oh, blimey, tigers, panthers, that kind of stuff. So those are my three favourites historical. And I do like a bit of fantasy gaming. You I've do. got to admit. I've never I've never got turned on by sci-fi. Yeah. I feel that sci-fi, that's what computers are for. So you can actually fly around in space and that kind of stuff. Yeah. But I have to admit, for my sins, a bit of what would now be called old hammer, early warhammery stuff. And as I've discovered Dungeons and Dragons, but my blend of Dungeons and Dragons, which is kind of an admixture of warhammery stuff. So I've got Skaven as one of the races yeah. and pure what edition of my foolishly playing fifth edition or something which is horrific you know <laughs> books full of rules yeah. man but i but that's as much to do with the storytelling element yeah. and uh i probably haven't mentioned you don't know this kid i've been doing improv courses literal acting improv oh, courses excellent. locally 
as a way as a morale boosting thing, a way of just doing something completely different than I've ever done before. Was that was that where that inner rant came from earlier on? Oh no, that's it, I've taken my natural. inner rant to improv. <laughs> I'm actually my, me and my group we're putting on a performance this Friday night in oh, front of a live audience, fantastic. which is like mad. I haven't done anything like that since university days. But anyway, so those handful of things, and and I think this is one of those things as we get older, yeah. we're learning to rationalise. Yeah, I've I've actually got like twenty different periods of stuff on my shelves. Mm, probably about time I started going on eBay and getting yeah. rid of some of it. Uh, but th- those things there. So I do I dabble in a bit of fancy, but not sci-fi. Yeah, All right, so, on to your next bit. No, no, because no, because you, no, you've now brought you've now brought more things into my mind. I'll go on what then. you were talking about. So um, just very I, I, early war desert. I absolutely love it as well, and we've yeah. got. Um, surprise, surprise, huge range uh, of 28 mil figures um, for that. Mm. And I love the a- the old A9 cruiser tanks and A10s yeah, and A13s. Yeah. And, and it's kind of a, we're discovering what this war is all about. And uh, mm. maybe those ideas that we had pre-war weren't so good. So let's try and fix them. And and yeah. we, we have a cutoff date of the 31st of December, 1941. And if your, vehicle, oh. if your vehicle is not in the desert at that date, it's, you can't have it on the table. Wow. So it cuts out all the long-barreled Panzer threes. so you're still on short-barreled stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's a real nice, even matchup, and we've had some fantastic games. There's a book yeah. by uh, Robert Avery called uh, On Operation Compass, and it's got 28 right. scenarios in, which are amazing and we're playing through those uh oh brilliant over, over the years we're on about 14 we've been going for about six or seven years but we'll talk about campaigns later on yeah. um so controversial question then just to finish this bit yeah lord of the rings is it historical or fantasy wow wow because to me i'll stick my neck above the parapet to me um, we've been um, sort of immersed in the Tolkien world for so long and for yeah. so deeply in many cases. Virtually yeah. everyone I, I I know who's a gamer, um, you know, has got extremely well thumbed copies of Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah. Um, some even made it to page seven of the Silmarillion, and and these people are amazing. I read the whole thing, mate, <laughs> and the unfinished well, tales. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. But it, it, and then you've got the films and, and everything else that's mm. come come since. So, yeah, yeah. you know that bit is it creeping? Is it creeping to be part? Of that I, I think it's really really interesting because also um, one of the things about God, I remember talking uh, with Neil Shuck on uh, from Veranda about the, the use of this word. Yeah. Plausible. Plausible. Uh, one of the things that uh, is really important when it comes for me when it comes to fantasy or imaginations mm. gaming or anything, you know, uh, when you're talking about war games rules, really is this this discussion about is it accurate or not? Mm. We can never say a hundred percent certainty that is accurate but what we can say is always plausible yeah and one of the things that's extraordinary about the lord of the rings as a body of literature is yes there's magic in there yes it's you know all sorts of stuff happens when it comes to the fighting 
and particularly the way Peter Jackson portrayed it in the yeah. movies, of course, it's incredibly plausible because it, yeah, it's a kind of it's a medievalish sort of battle, isn't it? Yeah. Medievalish, Renaissanceish, Dark Ageish kind of battle, and they went to extraordinary lengths to make it plausible. And I think that's a really interesting point, Ken. Is it? I mean, technically, of course, it's not history, but it's you could certainly say, well, it's kind of alternative history. Which is what Tolkien intended it to be. I think that if if he you were to say to Tolkien, "Oh, it's just a load of fantasy," isn't it? He would probably take umbrage at that. Yeah. First of all, he would take umbrage that well is is calling something fantasy an insult anyway? Because I know that there are certain war games out there. Oh my God! It, oh, it's it's spit fantasy, <laughs> right? Whereas my feeling is, I'm much my feelings are much more inclusive than that. It's it, you know, when I wrote the Wargaming Compendium, fantasy got its own chapter, just like it's another wargaming period. Yeah. Yeah, there's World War One, World War Two, there's fantasy. And why not? It because I think this is the other thing that, you know, with if we're talking about uh, as we might do, Room 101 later and pet hates and stuff. I hate divisiveness in the hobby. Yeah. I hate anything that creates barriers in the hobby and the thing is it's so hypocritical as well because i know so many historical gamers like myself who would probably say yeah primarily i'm a historical gamer but i also play some fantasy some sci-fi some this and that some board games whatever so overall i'm i'm a gamer and and certainly when it comes to the lord of the rings stuff when you look at the way that the lord of the rings stuff was produced by games workshop you know that those extraordinary ranges of miniatures amazing, the trouble amazing. they went to the accuracy the detail the the quality of the sculpting by guys we know you know the perry twins and mm. ali morrison and others you know da, da, da. the the trouble they went to was the same as if it had been a range of historical miniatures yeah Absolutely the same is in the same way as you know Alan, bless his heart, who's constantly cranking out more and more Napoleonic <laughs> miniatures and making sure that it, you know every buttonhole is correct. Yeah. When it came to Lord of the Rings, they made sure that everything looked exactly on the tabletop, the same as it had done in the movies. Yeah, which amazing, is an extraordinary amazing thing. work, amazing work. So I think that that's a really interesting point, Ken. That is Lord of the Rings. Would I put it in the same book as? in inverted commas ordinary fantasy right yeah i don't know the thing is because i'm 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 a big fan there's another fantasy writer i'm reading at the moment joe abercrombie who writes mm. what you would call grim dark stuff yeah. you know some of it's pretty grisly the characterization is phenomenal anyone out there's not read any joe abercrombie novels start with the blade itself trilogy and go for it. it is the most phenomenal writing and his writing about warfare mm. is incredible and his writing about warfare is as absolutely plausible as if it was a purely historical treatise mm. and he describes his novels actually don't have a lot of magic in them so it really is like wow that's like ancient medieval renaissance warfare absolutely to a t even down to guys suffering from like ptsd and stuff wow. absolutely ama yeah, yeah absolutely amazing stuff um we've kind of got off track here. i'm gonna go with, i'm gonna say yeah i'm gonna give a special place to lord of the rings in that venn diagram 
uh, as you do that it it's not pure historical gaming mm. but it is it's it's so much a part of our culture yeah. now yeah as if it were history so yeah I'll, I'll, that's a good point i've um i you know i i am unashamedly 28 mil big game historical player um but i've got a massive rohan cavalry army um oh, wow. that has it's been on the table once um i think i think there was supposed it was supposed in the book i was i'm, t- I'm talking like it's history um <laughs> i think there was supposed to be six thousand cavalry in the in the charge of the rohan yeah. pelinor fields um and and i've got that at once 20 and 28 mil um and, wow. I've, ne- and I've never used it no seriously no i've i've used maybe three or four units in a little game that we had at the club of that um war of the ring that uh games workshop yeah, yeah. brought out but it, it was it was just a fantasy project oh mate i would myself. love to see that i'd <laughs> love to see that laid out on a table at partisan even if you did nothing with it that must yeah. look amazing yeah. it's 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 a lovely lovely thing um, so we've digressed both. We, you digressed me, and then I digressed you. And then we, <laughs> so anyway, readers, uh, listeners. Uh, so finally, Venn diagram of wargaming. Yes. Right. So I kind of tried to break it down into four different sections, and I like to ask yeah. my guests where they see themselves with the different sections fitting together for their own yeah. personal hobby. So yeah. we have wargamer, we have painter, we have collector, yeah. and we have historian. So where do they fit together for you, Henry? What's your Venn diagram? I think the truthful answer, surely for most people, is it depends when you ask me that question. Oh, Because at certain times I get to play more games, so I'd say I'm more of a war gamer. Yeah. At other times, like <laughs> over COVID, when the hobby, you know, was very quiet for me, I was a collector painter yeah uh historian mm. um in the midst of that uh, the, you know the other kind of factor i have to add in is i'm also a writer about war game which means that in the course of writing a book like the compendium or the campaigns book i indulge certain aspects to test them out for the book but I suppose on balance uh, nowadays, if you you know if you were to walk in the house today and ask me where I lie on that thing, I'm God. Where am I? I that's so hard because I've been I've been painting a load of miniatures just yeah. lately. Yeah. But the Dungeons and Dragons miniatures. Yeah. But I interviewed Mark Urban, for which I read his book Red Devils. Yeah. Which is historical. Uh, I'm gonna. I'm playing a game on the 30th of December, but it's. I'm actually umpiring, DMing a Dungeons and Dragons game, mm. so I'm doing all the prep for that. The last actual war gamey war game I played, wow, was a game against my editor Phil uh, of Phil Sidner or of Pen and Sword, and that you're going to be shocked was last February. Yeah. And I'm horrified to hear, hear myself say that. I might have played a game over the internet with my mate Jay Arnold. Um, veteran Wargamer. Uh, veteran Wargamer. Um, but that would have been a board game. Commands and Colours yeah. something. Was it Napoleonics or Medieval? I can't remember. Something like that. So, but then at other times, I 
if I'm lucky, I get to play quite a few games. So yeah. I would say, oh, yes, gaming's what's dominating my life. So that's a, that's not a simple Venn diagram. But the things I lately, in recovery from cancer and the breakdown and all the rest mm. of it, painting miniatures has given me a great deal of pleasure. That's for sure. So, um, collecting. It's almost like I'm becoming an anti-collector at the moment. I'm trying to <laughs> shift some of my collection because I've re- I've looked at my shelves. I mean, you're you're a prolific painter, Ken. I yeah. admire you hugely. <laughs> I'm looking at my shelves and thinking, there's no way on God's earth I'm going to get all that stuff painted before I die. Yeah. You know, and hopefully I won't die for quite a long time. But still, I'm looking at it again. There's no fucking way, yeah. and I can't because of economics and all the rest of it. It's not like I can afford to pay someone else to paint them yeah. either. So just realistically. And this is where my interest in psychology comes. Why am I beating myself up? Why am I allowing myself to sit there staring at me, make, making me feel like shit? Yeah, you haven't painted them, you know. Because the, the self-hatred thing is a thing that, and I've come to understand a lot of us can suffer from, you know. So I don't want that in my life anymore. So do you know what? I'm just going to get rid of a load of stuff. Yeah. It's just going to go. And then the stuff that's left on my shelf that I haven't painted yet is definitely the stuff that I'm thinking, I do, I want to paint that because I want to have the satisfaction of completing those armies or whatever. Mm-hmm. Now, some people will throw up their hands in horror that some of the stuff I'm going to carry on keeping is plastic Spencer Smiths from the 1970s, you know, assuming they haven't crumbled to dust yet. Right, I haven't yeah. checked them lately. <laughs> But yeah, the the focusing on what's really important to me in the 18th century imagination stuff, I kind of took a detour. You know, earlier we talked about the fact that I invited a load of other people, bless their hearts, and I loved Mm. it. You know, it was a great experience. Invited a load of other people to participate in my world. And they, of course, raised all their own countries and armies and stuff, distracting me from my own task of, well, hang on a minute. I had plans for these countries dotted around Prumpland and Fountainland and their armies, and I'd started designing the uniforms. And I just put them on hold for like 10 years or more. Yeah. I think it's time I allowed myself the pleasure of just at leisure. This is the other mm. thing, Ken. At leisure, without the thought of, oh, I've got to crank them out because there's a game going on, at, you know. Yeah, so you you're not you, you, your gaming isn't driving your painting and and, and driving yes. your collecting because that yeah, yeah. that happens to a to a to a lot of people. Well, not happens. It, that's their yeah. that's their Venn diagram. Absolutely, and obviously, people who love putting on demo games at shows like Partisan or yeah. Salute or whatever. You know, I think of people like the lovely uh, James Morris yeah. or or Steve Jones or whatever, yeah. or, and other regulars who you will see at Partisan and whatever they you, know, you get to a show it's like wow that's a completely new game yeah. from last time i saw them and that's how they roll it's like their their hobby almost revolves around oh uh, right i because i love putting on games at shows and i want to put on something different next time so that drives their painting it drives their terrain building and all the rest of it so that they've got something fresh to show at the next uh, at the next event yeah Wow, I admire that. I, yeah, it's a long time ago now. I, I've done that a couple of times. Yeah. Oh my God, the pressure of, oh my God, we've got to put this thing on the table at the show tomorrow and the paint's not dry yet, kind of thing. <laughs> I was like, oh, I've realized it's just too stressful for me. I've had, fig- I've had figures on radiators 
the night before <laughs> before a show. Yeah. Hair dryer. Yeah. Wow. This is something I learned actually through painting watercolors. Is that, uh, I, 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 I've always loved painting with watercolor, but I, I, things went to the next level because I discovered um, there's a guy who lives kind of literally opposite me. Mm. Turns out he's an internationally renowned watercolor painter. Oh, wow. It's a beautiful, beautiful painting. It's a guy called Cecil Rice. Look yeah. him up, folks. He does amazing watercolors. And uh, he gives lessons, you know, to supplement his income. And um, one of the first things I can remember walking in and setting out my stuff, you know, and there's his stuff. And and next to his block of paper and his paints and all the rest of it array, there's this hairdryer. And it's like, so what's the hairdryer for? He says, oh, I haven't got time to wait around for all the colors to dry naturally. That could take hours. No, no, use a hairdryer. Wow, and this was the this was the tip. It's like, yeah, w- the difference is I'm an amateur; he's a professional. Right. In the time it takes me to produce one painting, he maybe can produce two or three because he needs to because he's got to try and get them out there and sell them, right? Yes, yeah, and yeah. it's just hot air, Henry. So imagine instead of cold, grey, rainy England, you were painting in southern Spain instead. Man, your paint's going to dry a lot quicker in southern Spain than they are here in Sussex, mate. So I achieve southern Spain temperatures with a hairdryer, right? Awesome. <laughs> Use it in the right way, because obviously, if you're not careful, you can you you, you point it at your paper and and the paint just goes <laughs> spreads out. But of course, the other thing is, you know, you can use that to create special effects. Yeah, yeah. you can actually yeah. it's like blowing on your paint on the paper. It's like, oh my god, mind blown! And so now I tell you, next to my painting table where I'm painting all those D and D miniatures, first thing that comes out is the hairdryer. That's yeah. for sure. You know, you want to, sp- you know, because this whole thing about speed paints and all the rest of it, the fact is, ha- well, how fast do you want them? I can make them twice as fast, that's for sure, using a hairdryer. Brilliant. Brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to the Henry Hyde Battle Games um, hairdryer coming out very soon <laughs> and, and, and available from from uh, good web stores. Exactly. It's almost like instead of a hair salon, it's a painting salon, yeah. isn't it? If you, had, Just, if, you, if you had a red hair dryer with the Battle Games logo on the side of it. Do you know what? This I, only, is I, only want temp, I only want 10%. That's all I want. There you go. I have got a red hair dryer. <laughs> <laughs> and guess what I'm going to be doing? <laughs> is yeah. putting the Battle Games logo <laughs> on the side. <laughs> We'll make millions, Man, we've mate. got off we'll, track here. We'll we'll make so I don't know if that answers your Venn diagram yeah. question, it Ken, does, mate. It does. at uh, an hour and a half in or whatever it is. Uh, does that answer your Venn diagram it, question? It does, mate. It does. Thank you All very right. much. Um, and then just finally, before we take a break, uh, social media, where can people get hold of you? What What are you on? Twitter, Facebook, etc. Oh, very easy. I'm uh, at Twitter, um, at least Twitter tells me it's at least three and a half thousand people know that I'm at Battle Games yeah. on Twitter. So if you look up at Battle Games and on Facebook, uh, there's a Battle Games page. So facebook.com slash Battle Games. Yeah. Uh, I'm there. I'm also, for my sins, I'm on Instagram, though I don't do as well. I haven't done as much so far there yeah. on. And again, I think I'm at Battle Games something on uh, Instagram. 
And of course, like a lot of people recently, I've opened a Mastodon account. Yes. Just, yeah. in, just, case. just in case. But literally, I've posted nothing there uh, to the disappointment, I'm sure, of the other people who are more keen on Mastodon. Because you know what it's like when you first open a social media account, Ken? It's like you, you need to kind of get it first. Every yeah. social media place has its own kind of feel. And I think like a lot of people, I mean, I'm, I, you know, bless their hearts, Nick and Rich of Two Fat Lardies, like me, are quite outspoken in terms of, oh, come on, let's, you know, we've we've built such a fabulous corner on Twitter. Yeah. Trouble-free, largely, I know you stirred it up, Ken, but largely trouble-free corner on it's always my fault. Twitter. The, the, you know, miniatures wargaming corner. And, you know, because I've painted posted some stuff about Warhammer and D&D. There's been some, you know, fantasy gamers and D&D gamers crept in as well, kind of peeking in the door of our little corner of Twitter. And it's really lovely and supportive. Mm. That's where I am most of the time. Mm. Uh, you know, if you want to find me and get my attention most quickly, you know, wave to me or whatever you do, um, mm. tag me on Twitter, though that's a pet hate I will come back to, actually. People randomly tagging you just because they want your attention. And oh, you go yeah. there and it's like, why have you tagged me? Yeah, that's no a, idea. very strange, very strange. Yeah, but there you go. But uh, Twitter, so Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, if, you know, by all means, like me or whatever you do on Mastodon, but don't expect to see very much there. But I also have another Facebook page for my shot steel and stone horse and musket rules which i almost keep forgetting that i've got but that's on the that's on the to-do list yeah yeah exactly but there you are that that answers your question i think Kim. excellent i'll just i'll just finish by saying that twitter um wargaming twitter is an amazing place and i love it so much and uh, occasionally there is a bit of uh, sniping <laughs> usually at me uh, but i don't mind i don't mind i could take it um and uh what what summed up Twitter for me was a few uh, weeks ago, a month or so ago, I put a post up. Uh, here's yeah. my tutorial for shell splashes for World War II naval. And within three posts, somebody had got a picture of um, Kevin Keegan with, with the Brute 33, if you remember the splash it all over. <laughs> and, and then and then somebody else put the Henry <laughs> Cooper ad up. And I yeah, thought, yeah. that's why I'm on Twitter, because yeah. it's not, we're not, nobody's up themselves there. It's all Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of really lovely banter. And also, you know, and on a personal note, when I was going through the cancer treatment and stuff, mm. the support I got on Twitter was amazing. Yeah. The, you know, if I, you know, I you know, did progress reports and I was doing videos and stuff. The support I got from the people on Twitter was phenomenal and i will always be grateful for that seriously just really good people there's a lad called ken hanning who's um, yes, going right. through a similar thing at the moment and yeah. um yeah the the support that he's getting on there is, is amazing and i and i yeah. think and i hope that it gives him a bit of comfort through yeah, what he's going absolutely through. definitely absolutely well ladies and gentlemen um we are one hour and 34 minutes into what is normally a half hour section <laughs> but if you came to this we'll speed up on the rest yeah if you came to this podcast think it was going thinking it was going to be short then you are delusional i'm afraid so um we will take a short break and we'll be back in a minute to talk about big games 
Uh, we're going to talk about big games, Henry. That's what happened. Oh, that's there. right. That's it. I knew there was something. I knew big games were coming. There's some. Having talked about big games on and off throughout the first part. No worries, mate. No worries. Um, so, um, as as I just mentioned there, ladies and gentlemen, you all know part two, big games. Uh, regardless of of where my um, guest comes from and what they do, uh, I always like to get people's opinions on big games, which is what I enjoy and what I do. Um, and please don't take the word big for better i've never said that um it's just i enjoy when we go back to that venn diagram of wargaming the big side of it is definitely me so as with everyone henry um what does a big game mean to you what appears in your mind when you hear those words I would there was a time when undoubtedly i would have said peter gilder's wargames holiday center yeah 30 foot by 15 foot or whatever it was with walkways in between every couple of tables and thousands upon thousands of uh well back then they were technically 25 mil weren't they scale they were, yeah. meant now nowadays yeah. 28 mil 32 mil i st- <laughs> and i st- the thing is this is interesting because um Again, I'm going to mention Andy Callan again because we uh, yesterday this kind of subject came up where he was talking about you know the latest never mind the Bill Hooks mm. rule set he's done and uh, the kind of size of armies that he's aimed that at and he said oh yeah, yeah probably no more than a hundred hundred and fifty miniatures aside um big and he said yeah because nowadays your people short attention spans haven't got the time to spare too many demands on the time just mm-hmm. not interested in doing it blah 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 and and it reminded me again that am i happy about that because i'm i was brought up in that generation where getting together for a war game more often than not meant the weekend you know you would invite someone to come and stay at your house for the weekend to play the game have, have some dinner once you're old enough go to the pub whatever get up the next day finish the game and this is of course is the appeal still of places like uh mark freese war games holiday center and there's a couple more two or three yeah. more now and yeah. springing up for those of us that love first of all the spectacle of a physically enormous game a game where you almost there's almost kind of a physical job to do i i can remember a number of times because um with mark freeth uh i i was responsible for getting the don featherstone commemoration weekends underway a few years ago when Don sadly passed, uh, inspired by his friend Ron Miles. And we started these big game Don Featherstone commemoration weekends at the War Games Holiday Centre in Basingstoke, uh, which at the time was in uh, standalone premises on a on a on an industrial estate somewhere near Basingstoke, <laughs> yeah. uh, which now Mark has kind of switched around and they actually take place in a holiday inn, I think it is, or somewhere like do, that. Yeah, I was I was down there last year. Yeah, for the Don Featherstone weekend. Exactly. You know, Mark. You know, like facing reality, like everyone else at the moment, had to cut his overheads, but somehow mm. manages to organise putting on these enormous games. But in the, the has to be said, the relative comfort of a pleasant hotel, it's you know, where there are facilities nice. and a bar and nice coffee and all the rest of it. But there is still, I feel, a place for for that 
where you are presented with the option of playing games with a collection that you could probably, most people, not you, Ken, I know, but most people could probably only dream of having. Yeah. Uh, because most, you know, the, the fact is, uh, this is something we're constantly having to convey to, uh, on my podcast, the American listeners. American houses are huge by comparison with mm. British houses. American houses very often have basements, you know, and that kind of thing. Mm. Uh, you know, people like Jim Perky, bless his heart, lives in what, you know, Lovely guy. Jim, you live in what we would describe probably as a mansion, mate, yeah. with a vast basement, with a, what he calls a closet of lead. A closet of lead where I remember when I interviewed him, he confessed he lost an entire Russian army. He misplaced an entire Russian Napoleonic army in his closet of lead. How big is this closet of lead, right? It's a TARDIS. But for most people... You know, of more limited means, limited space. So we make all those decisions about downs, literally downscaling our hobby or downscaling the miniatures or, you know, crikey, I've only got a six. I can barely fit a six before, you know. Yeah. And this is one of the things I realize I'm I'm blessed that having got this loft conversion done, I've got a permanent eight by six, which I can extend if I want to and if i don't yeah. mind you know losing a bit more weight to squeeze around the ends you know <laughs> um but there is something that i still love about a literally big game on a big table not so big you can't reach the middle this is one of the things mentioned the war game by charles grant again his table was nine feet by seven have you tried reaching the middle of a seven-foot-wide table? Well, I, we we actually, when we did Jutland, our table was eight-foot-wide. Really? Yeah. Um, and did you use croupier's pushy uh, things? You, you see, the clever thing was that because your battle lines are so far separated apart, you're only actually reaching in to the first four or five feet. Ah, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, good. Range of fire, they're not actually going to come to grip. Yeah. You don't melee between ships. Yeah, basically. I, might, I might look stupid, but I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> well, under those circumstances, for naval game or whatever, you've got long-range yeah. shooting. I, yeah. Absolutely correct. Very well. He's a bright boy, ladies and gentlemen. He's, a, he's not as stupid as he looks. But anyway... Um, so that's nice. Uh, the th but that's generally this, the case. About six foot wide is kind of the yeah, normal yeah. maximum. And that's all. I also remember over the years, size of table being dictated by the, the size of sheet of hardboard or whatever you could buy from the local DIY store. Yeah. You know, which now probably you could get, well, you can get lengths of probably two meters or whatever. Mm. But it used to be kind of, you know, four foot wide. I remember I had a table that was eight foot by four foot for a long time when I was, you know, back home in South End. Anyway, there's something about a literally big table with lots of beautiful terrain on it, carpeted with miniatures. Oh, yeah. That oh, yes. absolutely just floats my boat. And more than that, I think has a genuine role to play in teaching players about command and control. One of the things that I've seen so often, and I know Mark at the War Games Holiday Centre will echo this, you can have, you know, let's say it's a 30 foot by six foot table or whatever at the War Games Holiday Centre with 
X thousands of miniatures on it. It's a typical Napoleonic game. So each player is in command of, say, a division thereabouts. And the way that that game can so quickly break down into not one big game with the units being coordinated by clever commanders, it becomes half a dozen separate smaller division level games with the bloke uh, on one side of the table completely focused just on the guy to the other side of the table mm. and this it's almost like this invisible barrier uh, pops up between them and the next couple of guys along yeah it's the most extraordinary thing and and then it comes down to the skill and ability of if there's someone put in overall command to play the Napoleon or or Blucher or Hever- or Wellington mm. or Hammers happens to be how good are they at being like a real top level commander moving amongst the different divisions to see how things are getting on checking with those players right how are you going do you need any help or or having the guts to say to that player oh god i'm doing really badly i need reinforcements and that commander saying well, now I'm sorry, I'm not going to feed out reinforcements in penny packets. Mm. I'm holding a reserve for the crunch moment because that takes real skill. And yeah. having having a group of players who actually have formed a real team where they actually give a damn about what's happening next to them, you know, let alone what's happening on the far flank, you know, you can forgive people. For, well, you know, he's... 30 feet away there's nothing i can do there but at least the guy next door oh yeah we could help each other and if you're in the middle you've got two guys next door you know you know let's see what we can do to help one another coordination and i think the big game really has a role to play in teaching people about that higher level of Mm. command and control where mate you're not just the colonel deciding to turn your battalion into square and loose a volley right mm. that is beneath you almost you know, it's one of the problems <laughs> with a lot of war games rules of course is they do call on you to be both you know uh, captain colonel and uh, brigadier and divisional commander you know your, your, your head's kind of split across all these different levels of command one of the one one of the interesting things uh, about what you've just said there, it, it harks back to a conversation I had with um, Richard Harris, who runs a, a war games holiday centre yeah. up here as well, um, and we were talking about how um, a lot of people have criticised um, in the Grand Manor as a set of rules because there yeah. aren't any um, command and control rules in there. Yeah. But exactly as you said there, the command and control actually comes from yeah. real command and control between the players. And although that's something I've done naturally in all the big games I've played over all, over my life, I've never really thought about that yeah. in that context. And, and I've kind of looked to some of the more modern rules that put command and control restrictions on you within the rule set. Yes. Yeah. Um, as oh well, maybe we need to do that for a for a bigger game without realizing that it, like, as you say, it's already there. Yeah, and you 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 learn that my mate Ian, I love you, Ian, mate, but you you can be a nightmare. Um, <laughs> down the other end of the table is going to do exactly opposite to what you've said. Yeah, and you will you will be fighting your bit, and you'll look over and what the 
are you doing? Yeah. And and that's all part of the big game. Very, very, very much so. And those those thoughts that Andy had are what I had when I started the podcast. Yeah. That that most people don't want to do this anymore. And um and I th- I thought, well, let's see, shall we? <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's do a podcast about big games and see what people yeah. people say. And I tell you what, mate, I can't believe how many people listen and how many people comment. And one uh, particular comment was, um, and I, I'm not going to tell you who it was, but they're the known within the war games uh, yeah. st- stage. He goes, "Thank f for that. It's not another effing skirmish game. I'm really effing glad that you've done this." <laughs> so. I, <laughs> Which was brilliant because I, I I was starting to get to the point where we were in lockdown, so there was a there was a sense of being alone anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I've seen you know this starter game come out for twenty figures and these new rule sets for no more than a hundred figures, and I'm yeah. thinking, got units bigger than a hundred figures. What, what yeah, am I going to yeah, do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that relief when literally lo- it came flooding in and be, oh yeah. yeah, we do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because there's loads of little silos of gamers out there, isn't there? Yes, Five or yeah. six players. They don't really go to clubs, but they yeah. just do their thing on a nice big table. So, uh, so you, you've, there's so many interesting things coming out of what you just said there. Let, let's mm. uh, go back and address the command and control thing first of all, yeah. because uh, I think of and re- huge respect for, uh, say, Richard Nick at Two Fat Lardies, mm. where as you say, command and control and what they would call Clausewitzian friction is front and centre in their games, whether it's rolling dice to determine what you could do or drawing cards or or whatever it happens to be. And my feeling is this, that when you've got a game uh, at a relatively low level where it's just, you know, Ken, camera and navigate, just the two of them. I've come to realize, yeah, there's a place for that. Yes. Because you have got an individual gamer trying to represent or being forced to represent different levels of command. And so having certain things that are taken out of your control by random events or whatever can actually add something to the game. You Mm -hmm. can, whether it's in terms of, again, I'm going to use that word plausibility rather than necessarily in inverted commas accuracy, but certainly in terms of plausibility, in terms of just the sheer challenge of, you know, like a video game. Oh, can you get through in spite of all this friction happening? You know, that in itself took me a long while to get used to it, to be honest, because I came from the relatively frictionless big game direction. But it's like, now I can see, you know, a game of chain of command or or sharp practice or whatever happens. Yeah, I can see that when it's one player against one player, it's almost like, yeah, that can really add something. But as soon as you start moving into the multiplayer dimension, it's exactly as we've been talking about there, the players themselves add their own friction in terms of their interpretation of the the battle, in terms of their relationship with the other players, whether it's the player opposite them or the player on their own side. Because... You know, and I think back to, you know, the the big game that I will always remember, uh, Salamanca at the War Games Holiday Centre. People are so, oh, not that again, Henry, not bloody Salamanca. But yes, because in this context, it's really, really an accurate 
point to be made about the different dynamics between i was I, I was given the job, you know, everyone else took one pace backwards. I was the mug who stayed standing there when, you know, so who wants, who wants to be general Marmont? Everyone else said, no, thanks. Uh, oh, oh, right. I suppose it'll have to be me then. Yeah. And of course there was, I think it was the Leeds club uh, were there opposite as playing the British. Mm. And what became clear was that the, uh, I'm being as delicate about this. There was a certain degree of politics at work in uh, that yeah, club at the time, especially, where, especially as I might know them, <laughs> right? And there were certain key, there was certain key figures in the club who felt like they ought to be given particular roles. Okay, yeah. To which other people simply deferred. Whereas yeah. it was on our side, sitting in the pub in Scarborough before you know the night before, it was a democratic decision. All right, well, okay, uh, all right. So then it was like, right, uh, let's do what roles have we got? Let's look at the table. Okay, who who do you think, which of you do you think enjoy this kind of role with light cavalry out in the wing? And my mind, oh, I'll do that. And, you know, oh, I like lots of solid art. All right, let's put you in the pivotal bit of the middle of the battle mm. and all the rest of it. So the allocation of roles was very democratically decided. And also the decision before the game, before we moved a miniature, because in those days you started the game just with blanks. I don't know if you remember the yeah, yeah, good used the, to like blanks, little wooden yeah. blanks before he even put miniatures on the table. Uh, working just with the map, okay, this is what we're going to do, guys. Is everyone signed up to this? And I am going to keep the heavy cavalry, only dragoons and some horse artillery, as a central reserve. Mm. so that if whatever happens either to the good or to the bad we have got a reserve because yeah. this is one of the other things that can happen in a big game it dissolves into all these little mini things and right will you contribute to war oh no i need it i need i need that battalion no 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 i'm not giving it away so yeah. it was decided before the game we got this reserve and it worked perfectly the british were squabbling amongst themselves and it was uncoordinated and some people were more in you know interested in doing a you know keeping their prissy line very straight rather than getting there the fastest with the mostest and all the rest of it <laughs> and they ended up you know the, the, uh, anyone who knows the battle of salamanca there's the the arapiles the the mm. hills in the middle of the battlefield at the hinge point which are absolutely key to the battle mm. and I, one of my guys, it was uh, one of the divisional commanders, and he had the artillery, the heavy French artillery. And he kept saying to me, oh, should I limber up and move forward? And I said, no, just keep firing. Because as soon as you limber up, that's a move gone. You move however far, not very far with artillery, that's another move. You unlimber there, that's another. Yeah, so you've yeah. lost three rounds of heavy artillery at that mm. key point. Just bloody keep fighting. And he was as good as gold. Yeah. And my lads out on the flanks, just make it, draw the British forces away from the Arapiles. Make as much trouble as you can out on the flanks. Mm. And they, again, were as good as gold. You know, my mate Guy with the light cavalry, he gets banged in char hopeless charge after hopeless <laughs> charge. But the British, like, oh, squirrel. They were drawn to the fact that the French were mm. so active out on the wings. They hadn't expected that. Oh, my God. So they were fed reinforcements out to the flanks. Yeah. And what a glorious moment. I, as commander, suddenly saw there's a gap opening up in the British yeah. centre. And yeah. I just launched half a dozen regiments of dragoons or whatever it was and the horse artillery straight at the 
greater uh, the lesser Arapilas and smashed through the middle of the British line and just rolled them up. It was literally flank after flank after flank. Uh, didn't have time to form a square. They broke. They bro it was the most magnificent moment, <laughs> and the British were horrified. And yeah. oh my God, some of the arguments you could hear breaking out amongst. Oh my God, how did you let that happen? Well, you told me that. Absolutely, and that was an absolute classic example, Ken, of where mm. if you actually talk properly about teamwork, mm. and you do. And I can't, I keep thinking of it, you know, people who love Star Trek, even historical war games like Star Trek, you know, Captain Picard, right? Next generation. The absolute model of good management where mm. he listens to, he, he invites input from his various sub-commanders mm. and then formulates a plan, gets them to agree to the plan and then goes ahead with it. Right, mm. as opposed to the dictor dictatorial, this is what I think. Just do what I say, kind yeah. of approach. Yeah, which uh, most people in real life, let alone in a war game, will just go, mm, "Fuck you!" Then, frankly, <laughs> yes, Henry does swear, folks. I was brought up in Essex, right? <laughs> but they—that's what can happen. People are just like, "Oh God, who does he think he is?" You know, yeah, yeah, bossy boots. Yeah. So uh, that. And that is, in my head, it's only possible either in a big game or an enormous game of the kind that Paddy Griffith used to run, you yeah. know, big Kriegspiel-type games. And, of course, the big war game with miniatures is only really one step down from the big Kriegspiel that's actually used to train officers and staff yeah. officers, you know. So it's got a huge validity and in some contexts, of course, as I say, literally the physical space being occupied, we've got a table 30 feet long where the person at one end of the table literally doesn't know what's going on at the other end of the table. Mm. Yeah. In the same way as a commander in a real battle, you know, one thing we don't have in our war games, unless someone's a very heavy smoker, which is <laughs> out of fashion these days, yeah. you don't get the literal fog of war, clouds of black powder smoke and all that mm. kind of stuff. So actually having a physically big table is as close as we're going to get to that, really. But I also wanted to say, Kim, yeah. that uh, one of the things that's become possible because of the advent of more smaller scale miniatures mm. and the terrain and stuff to go with that, reaching its current apogee with obviously Mark Backhouse and his strength and honor rules and mm. the two mil stuff is you can have a big, huge battle on a picnic table. Yeah. So if you want the, the, the experience of commanding huge numbers of men in a big battle, you can still have that in a, first of all, a financially affordable way. You as long as you adapt your painting style and you're not trying to put eyeballs on two millimeter miniatures, right? In a way that you can achieve painting large forces in double quick time. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, this is one of the places where, of course, things like contrast paints and that kind of stuff can come into their own to get decent results very quickly. <clears throat> and you can get, and this is one of the things I discussed with Mark when he came on the podcast. 
you can get that real bird's eye view where you are literally looking down on this extraordinary tableau top down of all these units maneuvering on the tabletop. Some of those paintings, again, talking to uh, the lovely Sydney Roundwood and other people, mm. you know, you go to museums and you see those beautiful kind of 17th, 18th, 19th century paintings of huge battles. If that's the look you want, well, you can do it in micro scale and there's nothing mm. to stop that. Mm. And I think that's a, you know, if we're looking for a successor to big war gaming, that's a worthy successor. But if someone, mm. I can understand, you know, what's the price of a 28 mil miniature nowadays? You know, it's not as cheap as it used to be. Thanks to Putin and others, we're all <laughs> tightening our belts and the rest yeah. of it. I can understand why someone looks at, yeah, I'd love to have a 28 mil French Grand Armée, you know, mm. to take on the Russians at Moscow. Mm. Can't afford that. What mm. I can afford, how I could afford to do it in 15 mil, 12 mil now with the epic stuff. Uh, it, you can do it in 6 mil. You can do it in 2 mil. And still remain faithful to that notion of uh, the experience I want mm. is of commanding big forces in a big battle. Uh, and obviously, but what then what lacks is exactly what we were just talking about, which is you don't literally get the physical impact of an enormous game on an enormous table with multiple players. Yeah. Uh, and, but, but I mean, that's... <laughs> In a sense, I suppose that's just something we're going to have to accept as well, Ken, isn't it? That, you know, the reality, as as Andy mm. was saying on my podcast yesterday, that people seem to have be under more time pressure nowadays, don't they? Mm. It's, I, think, I, think, I think we mentioned it when I was on your podcast about that deferred pleasure, or I think you, you had the correct terminology for it. Um, and the... You know, when I saw that big game in Northern Military in the mid eighties, mm. it it didn't frighten me. It I didn't yeah. go, I can't do that. I went, yeah. I want to do that. And yeah. I, I talk a lot on this podcast about aspiration, and we tend to silo our war games projects into what am I going to do next summer or what am I going to yeah. do next week at the club, rather than going as I am at the moment in. Looks at, looks at the date. In three years' time, um, I'm going to be doing the Battle of Pavia at the Royal Armouries in front of the Pavia display. Wow. So I'm planning the three years ahead yeah. and building, you know, big Spanish and big imperialist armies to go with the armies that I've already got. So people tend, and I, you know, I'm not overgeneralizing when I say that most people do like things a lot quicker. Yes. You know, when. When we sent off stuff for, you know, three, four, five weeks through the post, it would arrive. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now you see people on Twitter, if it's not there in two days, I ordered this from such and such a games and it didn't come. When did you order it? Two days ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So uh, there, there is there is a, a lot there is a lot of people, a lot of people out there who still do those big games. And, yeah, yeah. and since I've started this, a lot of younger players have kind of come and had a chat at a game yep. uh, and yep. we've talked about because yep. you, the, I don't think there's anyone in the hobby who 
regardless of what they play, doesn't like the look of a big yes. game. Whatever yep. the scale is, if it's a 30-foot table with 6 mil stuff on, like Pear Broden does, yes. y- you're going to go, wow. Yeah. So that, that wow factor's there regardless of your scale. I think I think the other thing is um, what we've kind of left out as well is the collaborative aspect. Mm. Yeah. Because one of the things, uh, you know, as a lover of big games myself, one of the things that happened with the Imaginations campaigns that I was running, it brought together dozen, 15, 18, whatever it was at its height, guys, each of whom went away and raised their own Imaginations army. There's no way. I mean, actually, when we did the first, the very first game, which was, oh, God, when was that? Like 2011 or something like that. I've lost track of time. Uh, up in Aiton, right, mm. near Scarborough, uh, organised by Mark Phillips, known as Peeler online. Mm. Um, I, actually, most of the figures on that enormous table were mine, my Spencer Smith mm. collection. I, I was startled at how many I actually had. <laughs> and it... it it was enough. Many, many, many. I've, I've lost. I think I might have been able to put some like twelve hundred figures or more on the, on the table. And some people have got a few of their own. And it, it kind of made you know for the the the, the, the climactic battle of the weekend. It made for a pretty damn good spectacle. Charles Grant, eat your heart out. You know, it looked damn good. <laughs> yeah. And what happened? That I was delighted inspired the players to say oh well okay i borrowed henry's miniatures for this weekend oh next time i want my own and they went away and raised their own forces they were happy for me to provide a lot of the background you know fluff about the countries Mm. and all the rest of it which i'm more than happy to do because they kind of appeared from a a parallel dimension to take part (laughs) in this world i'd already created it's a bit weird rationalizing the whole thing but anyway, what it meant was the next time we did it, yeah, I brought along all mine, mm. but also, wow, these people had raised in the intervening year hundreds of figures of their own. So the next battles were enormous. And so for the four or five times that I organized it, these games were vast, you know, enormous. I think the table ended up being like 36 feet long by six feet wide. Oh, brilliant. And just this, these, I mean, I look back at the photos, the terrain obviously had to be kind of temporary terrain because it was in a village hall, right? So it was like various types of cloth with terrain put on top, but still it didn't matter. All those troops, many of them exquisitely painted, just looked fantastic. And the again, because we were using my own shot, steam and stone rules that I did originally designed for like, uh, two-player games, you know, with like a dozen units aside, that kind of thing. I was amazed they stood up to being used for these enormous games. And the interesting thing is exactly what we've been talking about, the command and control issues developed from the players themselves, where if they collaborated between their teammates, they did well. If they just said, I just, here's my six feet, thanks very much, I'm just doing my thing. Not so much. You know, and it, they were enormous. And this is the other thing about a big game. It's hard to convey. Big games played over entire weekends because we start off on the Saturday. We'd probably have two, you know, 
two games that most people would think of, oh, that's a big game, yeah. followed on the Sunday by an enormous game. That's a probably, you know, there's yeah. big games and then there's, oh my God, enormous game. Yeah. And the Sundays were definitely enormous games. The sheer sense of having taken part in something that's bigger than would have been possible on your own, right? Mm. That there's something about that collaborative team aspect that when it comes off is hugely satisfying it literally is greater than the sum of its parts and it's uh, the culmination of so much you know there's the campaign time building up to it so the prelims and all the rest of it but the respect for each individual who's put all that effort into creating their own armies in this case designing their own uniforms doing some of the mad conversions people did as well, particularly kind of the bizarre and North African ones, you know, camel gunners and things on elephants. And oh, I remember, I'll never forget Mark Phillips had wanted some elephants, but he had giant elephants and he contacted me first as Umber. He said, Henry, can I have giant elephants? Why do you want giant? Elephants? Oh, I was at a jumble. So I found these four candle holders that are like elephants, but with, a thing for a nightlight candle in the back, which would be great to kind of put troops inside. And it's like, all right, okay. <laughs> Henry come up with a special rule for these enormous elephants that might collapse under their own weight or whatever. And there was something that was just so satisfying about, mm. you know, running a game, having umpired it and then running the, the games, seeing these players getting so much satisfaction from mm. just participate whether they won or lost was almost immaterial just participating in this extraordinary thing and one of the things you know i've i've uh uh you know you you've spoken to richard harris and i've spoken you know to mark freeth and stuff and one of the things mark has certainly told me is he hardly ever plays games himself these days yeah. but he gets huge satisfaction from seeing the pleasure people get from playing games with the stuff he provides. Yeah, and definitely. that is an interesting thing because it's almost like you're getting, as the organizer of the game, you're getting this kind of vicarious mm. pleasure, aren't you? And also, again, what you were saying about uh, the, the, the deferred satisfaction yeah. you know, of uh, working towards something over an extended period of time mm. is something that... Uh, so often, you know, you see people are under pressure. Oh, I've got, a, I'm having a skirmish game. I've bought this fire team of like half a dozen figures. And I'm getting them painted in time for the club this weekend. It's a very different kind of thing. And like you, it's like, there's nothing wrong with that. If that's what floats your boat, if you get your kicks out of small unit tactics and that kind of, and one of the things, you know, because I've been doing the Dungeons and Dragons, the level of characterization and personality that you can feed in at that level, which is impossible when you're dealing with a cast of thousands, yeah. is its own form of pleasure and satisfaction. But it's a very, it's quite a different one. Uh, and one of the things I've become really interested in is this notion of story and the way that in a small scale thing like Dungeons and Dragons or skirmish games, story can emerge because of the individual personalities of individual figures and their fate, you know, in the 
God, you know, how, how long does a skirmish game represent? It can just be minutes, can't it? Mm, yeah. As opposed to the many hours or days of a big game. Mm. But a big game also has its own sense of story, its own epic sense of struggle, its own epic sense of survival, where you're talking not necessarily about the fate of individuals, but, you know, we all grew up on the Black Watch, the Scots Greys, you know, uh, the Charge of the Light Brigade, where it's the units and even the divisions which take on a kind of personality of their own. They, they share a fate of their own. And when you're commanding a division and you see your favourite regiment buckle and break, it's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking, definitely. Definitely. Right. So I think this is this is the other thing. A lot of people can get, you know, and because uh, I talked a lot about story, because I'm literally writing stories as background for the, the 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 dungeons I do. But I also do that for my imaginations as well, because mm. story is the thing I'm interested in in itself. But even if you're not someone who's you know a, a, an aspiring writer, fighting a big battle, story kind of emerges, whether you like it or not. And there are those. Big battles have those key moments and they can go right down to the wire. This is the other thing that so often, you know, I've heard people, oh, yeah, if I put on a big game, I can never finish it. Well, if you set out with the intention that whatever the conclusion is by the end of day two, let's say, mm. that's what it's going to be. Actually, I find that the players do kind of get a bit of a giddy up on and try yeah. to achieve something before the close of play. And that decision to do the giddy-up can sometimes work. Yes, we've broken through into open ground. Whoa, hey. Or it can be disaster. Oh, crap. Perhaps I shouldn't have launched my heavy cavalry at those squares, <laughs> yeah. Marshall Ney. You know. Yeah. It, it gives an end objective, doesn't it, to a game. Um, and sometimes um, in my discussions about big games with people where they haven't enjoyed it, they've just had a bad big game. Yeah. And you can you can have a bad small game, yeah. Um, uh, and going back to that first section and and the, the Venn diagram of wargaming, I am very much a painter collector. I'm, I'm mm. I enjoy gaming, but I can you know I can live without it. Mm. So I'm in a situation personally where I've got collections of a couple of thousand figures. What am I going to do with it games wise? Yeah. Do I want to take twenty of them? down to the club and play a skirmish and yeah. leave 1,880 behind. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah. No, I don't. <laughs> so it's just, it, it's just that thing. The way, what scratches your itch for the wargaming is yeah. it, how you wargame. Um, yes, absolutely. One thing, one thing you, you, you mentioned a little bit there was, was the commanders. So, you know, we were talking about command and control. Yeah. And um, Bruce Quarry, uh, if you remember, we, we've looked at that table for the units, but yes. he also had that table for the commanders, if you yes, remember. Yes, yes, yes. And they would each have a, an attack factor and a defense And a defense factor. factor, that's right, yeah. Well, if you think about your wargaming mates and the, and the people that you've played games with, there's always going to be that guy who likes to hide behind a wall yeah. and, and not go anywhere. Yeah. Uh, and, and that person who's the dashing cavalry commander who yeah. will fly across the table with the heavy cavalry, whether you want them to or not. Yes. Uh, yeah. So you kind of, each person has their own 
personality that is then reflected in the game. Yes. That if you look back on history, you can say, well, he's a Marshal Ney. Yeah. Uh, oh, he's an Udenol. You know, yeah. you can. See... This is part of the skill. If you if yeah. you appoint a commander in chief in a big game, yeah. that's part of their skill. Where hopefully, I mean, it was kind of weird when I did the Salamanca thing because there was only one other person in our team that I knew, my mate yeah. Guy, and yeah. there was like five, six other guys who like I'd never met them before in my life. Whereas obviously the advantage should have been with the Leeds club, where. Mm. They play against each other every week. And exactly as you're saying, over that, you know, I, again, looking back to the game, I was quickly able to assess there was one guy on our team who was a, quite an introvert sort. Mm. And you could just tell, like, yeah, if I order him to charge, he's probably going to find a reason not to. Right. He was quite happy just gradually maneuvering his battalions, keeping them nice and neat and lined up. So there's no point appointing him as you say in charge of yeah. the heavy cavalry that needs to make the, the breakthrough and you're absolutely right you can look around your friends or your club members and go yeah okay in defense oh he's a plus three yeah in attack not so much right maybe a <laughs> minus one even yeah yeah uh, and people can people are different people can just get flustered in different situations some people are really good under pressure and so can take it when, you know, they are in charge of a division that's being attacked by three enemy divisions. They won't crack until their troops actually crack. They won't get flustered by that. In fact, some yeah. people even take a certain joy in that, like a Marshal Zhukov, yeah, you know. Yeah. And there's other people who are, yeah, yeah, I'm going to give him the light cavalry because yeah. he is going to be great at, working his way around the enemy flanks, making an absolute pain in the ass of himself. And that, again, come back to Salamanca, my mate Guy was brilliant at that, you yeah. know. And more, even more specific, if I'd given him heavy cavalry, he wouldn't have been as good. He had, he was much more of a kind of, I like annoying, <laughs> not an annoying character, yeah. but he, did, he had this way of... You know, if it had been an Ancients game, you'd put him in charge of the horse archers, right? He's going to go around the flanks and harry them and harass them, and they're going to turn to try and shoot at him, and he's off again, and they're going to, damn, and try and chase him again, and he's off, and then he's back again and harassing them. And that's what he was brilliant at. I, I fully admit I'm a heavy cavalry guy. Yeah. I'm a guy, you know, that Salamanca game for me was perfect. Give me a block of regiments of heavy cavalry, armoured or not, and give me that, it, the technical term is the coup d'oeil. It's the spotting, that precise moment where it's now, boys, up yeah. and at them, you know. Yeah. Bang! There's a little gap. I'm not going to let you get away with that. Bang! Smash through the middle. That's what I love. It can go terribly wrong, of course. If you're up against <laughs> yeah. a very good opponent who is like, if they know me too well, I'm going to sucker Henry into, you know, this. <laughs> And then he'll find himself getting charged in the flank by my Polish lancers or whatever. That can happen. Hands up. You know, I can get carried away with it. Yeah. But for me, that's part of the, it's. I'm a risk taker. Yeah. You know, I'm I'm the guy who's <laughs> stupid man who started his own war games magazine, for God's sake, right? <laughs> nearly got, went bankrupt because of it. I'm a risk taker in life yeah. and I'm a risk taker on the war games table. Mm. And this is probably why I've really struggled 
with games like Chain of Command, where if you're a risk taker, you can get really badly punished. <laughs> you know, mm, yeah. Perhaps you should learn to be a bit more cautious in certain situations. Oh, fuck! It's only a minefield. Let's get a go. <laughs> right. So, and I, and I think that that develops the other way as well in that you recognise the, the personality and character of the person that you're playing or the part of the team that you're yes, playing. Yes, yeah, yeah. And, and, a, and a good commander in those situations will have their own command and control to um, exploit those weaknesses or yes. strengths, if you like. Because like you say, if you've got that Henry Hyde character with that big chunk of heavy cavalry... You're going to go right. If I just leave a little hole here, he's going to yeah, yeah. He's going to get excited, <laughs> isn't he? <laughs> <laughs> what I can say is, I've been in most big games I've played, and it is the vast majority. I've been very lucky yeah. where that thing happens. As I'm saying that, because I'm very good at looking to either side, mm. right? I'm very good at you know, I because I, I understand that thing where people tend to concentrate on their six feet of table. They kind of almost feel like, well, so long as my troops are kind of butting up next to that guy's, I'm kind mm. of okay. I'm quite good at spotting where there's a little opening happens between that person's stuff and that person's stuff and piling in where they're least expecting it. At the moment, they're least expecting it because they've got lulled themselves into a false sense of security, you know. And it is almost kind of like, oh, squirrel over there, and bang! <laughs> Sorry for shouting, but this is that's part of the joy I get out of the game. And if you read historical, um, you know, reports of battles, yeah. uh, you know, in World War Two, you hear about people looking for the gap between cores yes. or the the boundary between yeah. cores and attacking at that place because they yes. know it will cause command and control yeah. confusion. Look at Rommel. I mean, in yeah. my campaigns book, uh, there was going to be, we had to cut it, unfortunately, because otherwise the book may never have appeared at all, ever. I wrote a whole chapter, which I'm go I think I'm going to release as a, as a standalone kind of book, yeah. because I think there's enough material in there to really kind of... Um, show my passion for certain bits of his i wrote about the battle of marathon i wrote about i think it was edge hill in america in the english civil war and i wrote about rommel in 19 france in 1940 mm. and rommel now there's a genius who could see exactly what you're describing oh there's a gap opening up between the french and the british there so where am i going to go bang it's one of those things you see blitz blitzkrieg's an interesting kind of concept mm. isn't it one of those uh, things that you often see in war games is that people will see a a, 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 a place of resistance, mm. right? They will see a bunker. They will see a stone wall with enemy in it or behind it and think, right, oh, I need to beat that enemy. Oh, this mm. is going to be hard. I've got to get them out from behind that stone wall or out of that building. Mm. Rommel would be like, sod the stone wall. Go round it. <laughs> Yeah, go round it, mm. and suddenly that unit that's taken all that trouble to hunker down behind the wall is completely exposed. Because did they think about protecting their rear as well? No, they mm. didn't. So you send a couple of panzers round the side. Oh yeah. my god! Just unzips the entire enemy line, mm. and that's what he did historically. To well, as we know, fantastic effect sent mm. the French and the British skittering back to the Channel coast. And on the grand tactical scale, that's what 
I love seeing in a war game where you get, you know, when you think of Napoleon at Austerlitz or something like mm. that, you know, or, you know, Ney as a cavalry commander generally, and other certain historical moments there have been where someone, you can get dazzled by, all oh, the big enemy blocks. What about the gaps between them, folks? Mm. Attack the gap, not the enemy themselves, because then the enemy is going to have to readjust to deal with what you're doing. The whole thing about initiative, taking the initiative from the enemy, not playing their game. Mm. And I think it's one of the things that can happen. A lot of uh, war games can turn into rather stolid plodding affairs because what's happening is everyone's just like some kind of dance conforming to the other player's moves all the time, which means you end up with this slightly formulaic, all right, bang, bang, charge, charge, crunch, crunch, mm. without much movement happening. Whereas it doesn't have to be like that. No. And one of the things I feel is that a good set of war games rules should allow the unexpected, the unusual. Mm. Um, anyway, I'm going to shut up. Like, what section yeah. of the program are we in here, we're, Ken? We're, we're still on part two, mate. We're, we're still on part two. <laughs> we're not. We're not even finished part two. And I'm only on question <laughs> two of five on part two as well. <laughs> I, right, I'm going to shut up now. I'm no, not going to say another fine. word. It's fine. It's fine. Did I think I brought you on to not talk? <laughs> <laughs> they call if, me. They, they call me Silent Hyde, don't they? Yeah. If if anyone if anyone sees the you know the, the trailer or the the promo for this and they see that it's me and you talking, they're not going to go. Well, that'll be over in half an hour. <laughs> I think I think we managed to let, make a cup of tea last forty minutes at parties, <laughs> didn't we? Anyway, oh, anyway, um, so we, 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 serious moment now, serious moment because um, I, I like you very much, Henry, but you do need to make an apology to the people of Yorkshire, and you might not remember this, okay. um, but um, you uh, spoke to Mark Freeth some time ago on your. Battle Games uh, podcast, and yeah. you described Yorkshire as, I quote, the bleak Yorkshire moors. And um, I'd just like to point out that that is an area of outstanding natural beauty <laughs> that is revered throughout the world and has many millions of millions of tourists who come to see our beautiful countryside, Henry. <laughs> Consider me contrite. I know. I do you know what? I joke. No kidding. I absolutely bloody love Yorkshire. I think it's a fabulous place, yeah. and uh, I've had some very very happy times there. Yeah, uh, and uh, and it's just the people, you know. The- <laughs> what can I say? I mean, it's 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 an open secret that I was you know I was born in Cheshire and I came. I to, know I was going to say I, what I, are you do. I came to Yorkshire in eight uh, when in in the nineteen eighties, and and oh, I've never looked back. And I'm you know I considered myself an honourable Yorkshireman. Um, yeah. I tell you what, it it it's a it's a bloody lovely place, and it's a lot less crowded than it is down here in Sussex. I can tell you. Yeah. Uh, one of the things I've, you know, I've been living here long enough now to notice that if, because Sussex has got some beautiful countryside, absolutely mm. gorgeous countryside, and there's nothing I like better than turning off the main roads and just twiffling down a little country lane, you know, whatever, just get to see what's there. And it's 
not as easy to do that as it used to be because mm. you know a lawful lot of folk have moved down from london or built second homes or whatever and there's an awful lot of places in sussex now that are not as empty as they used to be sadly and that's one thing that certainly yorkshire has still got is yeah. that thing that i love that you can feel you can drive you can go somewhere go for a drive and not see another car for like half an hour or whatever yeah which is in my eyes a wonderful wonderful thing and just some of the some of the scenery is just staggering it's amazing i'm i'm very lucky in that i spent a lot of years working in the yorkshire dales and you know, if you felt a bit down at work, you would just drive up into into the dale somewhere, yeah. and pop into some random farmyard, and there'd be a farmer there. And within five minutes, your best mates, you're having yeah. a cup of tea and, and talking about what's going on. So I, yeah. I, 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 I have genuinely fallen in love with the place over the thirty years that I've been here, um, yeah. uh, and I wouldn't want to live anywhere else now. I gen- yeah, yeah, genuinely yeah. wouldn't. Um, yeah. So we, we've talked about Salamanca. Um, have you yeah. got any other big games that sit out? Well, in the, your mind? the 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 thing is, a lot of the big games I played. I mean, I've been at the War Games Holiday Centre. Oh my goodness me, uh, crikey! We did Gettysburg. Uh, we've done uh, oh crikey, uh, Austerlitz, Leipzig. Yeah. There's been a, yeah whatever Mark was putting on basically is that I, we did Isandal Wana as well, so they they've all been lovely. Sometimes I've been partly a spectator because I was covering them for the magazine or whatever. But a lot of the big games I played over the years have been kind of imaginary games, you know, just scenarios we've dreamt up as an excuse to get thousands of troops on the table. <laughs> and of course, my imaginations campaign weekends. Uh, with the guys, what can I say? They've just been, even though I've not necessarily been playing in them, just mm. being there and witnessing them and helping to organise them, a bit like we were saying, you know, Mark Freed's experience. Uh, you know, what what can I say? I mean, people just have to look back through old copies of battle games or miniature war games with battle games, and, they, you know, they, they festoon the pages of mm. many issues of those magazines. Um and in the early days with my mate Guy, you know, where we just did lots of 18, particularly 18th century games, just piling as many as many <laughs> figures as we could cram onto whatever table we had at the time, almost for the challenge of being able to manoeuvre in spite of having so many troops, you know. Because there is that kind of... Tr- this is the other thing with big games, isn't it, that you don't get with small skirmisher games. There's the traffic jam aspect. Yeah which again is a genuine command and control issue where you've got that amount of space and this would be the job of the quartermaster general or whatever setting out the ground and saying right that division goes there that division goes there and you have to fit your troops into that space Mm. and in a way that's not only meaningful so that, that it makes them the most potent they can be in the battle but if something goes wrong can those units in front actually retreat through or past the units that are just behind them arranging your army properly not in a single flimsy line but in multiple lines usually two or three lines that's a real challenge being able to manage a force that's arrayed in multiple lines of battle and then the units of the front get eroded you if you leave them there they're just going to break and panic and spread panic 
So how do you deal with that? In terms of specific games, mm. you know, like I said, I've the Salamanca is the one that always lives in my memory because it was so the unexpected. Great victory. You know, well, well, when Peter Gilder said, "Right, you lot are the French," it's like, oh shit, right? Yeah. You know, we anyone who'd read anything about the history of the Peninsula War knows, ah, oh, yeah, the the French had the poo kicked out of Salamanca. <laughs> this isn't going to go well. So that moment where, oh my god, oh my god, I think we're going to do this. Fantastic. I've witnessed Waterloo. Funny again, uh, interviewing Mark Urban the other day, who. Um, uh, is a big American War of Independence fan. And many yeah. years ago, the first time I met him, uh, he was running a big American War of Independence game, which was the siege, uh, Battle of New York, or Long Island, I think. Long Island, yeah. I've seen yeah. that one. And Dave Brown was running a huge 15mm Waterloo. Now that was fascinating, if nothing else, because of the acrimony amongst the French commanders. <laughs> Again, going back to team spirit and all the rest of it, yeah. there wasn't much team spirit and evidence amongst the French that day. I think that's fair to say. Um, but that was memorable because, uh, I mean, it looked all, all the miniatures, I should say, those beautiful uh, Anthony Barton battle honours mm. 15 millimeter figures, which look gorgeous. Yeah. And there were thousands of them. And they'd. Uh, Dave had made a Dave or one of his mates from the Loughton Strike Force had made a beautiful La Haye Saint and an incredible Hougamont model. Oh, they just and I think for a battle like uh Waterloo, you have to get those set pieces right, don't you? Yeah, if you if you Hay Saint, oh Christ, it's just some crappy old airfix kit. <laughs> And your Hugomont's made from flimsy cardboard. Mm, it's not going to do the job, is it? No. So those two set piece pieces were beautiful uh and it's the same as uh, other big games i remember if you look at um say is um rourke's drift done on almost pretty much a one-to-one -one scale i've seen that done as well just looks amazing so my yeah i almost feel like it, you made me feel like a bit of a fraud here ken that i i can't <laughs> say um oh yes we've done that historical battle and that one and that one and that one and that one and that just haven't, but that's partly because I've not been a member of a club, yeah, right, yeah. And I think that's one of the differences that often club projects aren't they? They're oh, let's do Leipzig, let's do Dresden, let's do whatever it happens to be. Um, and I've just not kind of been party to that sort of arrangement. No worries. Well, it's lovely to hear your memories of big games because that's kind of what this section's all about. Uh, and uh, we've done an hour on that as well. So. <laughs> So, um, ladies and gentlemen, we should be back very, very shortly for the feature section, which I know some of you are looking forward to. There you have it. We are two hours and 37 minutes into this podcast, and we have reached a halfway point, would you believe? And uh, I decided to draw a line on it there and uh, do the second half uh, next week. So uh, if you've come this far, I'm sure you'll want to uh, listen to the rest of it next week. 
a very, very enjoyable chat with Henry. It always is. And uh, I know he's done a lot of podcasts in the past and, and spoken to a lot of people, both as an interviewer and as a guest. And um, I wanted to maybe try and get a few different things from him. And hopefully I managed to do that. Hopefully now you understand the hairdryer mud rant um, as the title of this episode. And we're going to be literally back next Friday with the second part of this episode. So until then, look after yourselves. Uh, hopefully you'll get a game in this week sometime and uh, be ready for next Friday. So until then, see you.